say we can't afford not to be bored. So we just said we're here and where's here? Where is here? So this is the Summit View Park in Franklin County, Virginia. And we're at a militia event. So they are putting on a Veterans Day event here uh, in Franklin County. Um, it might, uh, it does conflict with the uh, the Veterans Day event that is being held by actually the town of Rocky Mountain. Is it during the same hours? Yes. You know, strangely enough, I have never made it to the town of Rocky Mountain event, even when Dad spoke, and I feel like terrible about that. There were two times I attempted, uh-huh. but there were too many cars. <laughs> oh find, no! I couldn't find a place to park. Uh, that's terrible. Well, it's terrible, but it's also good. That mm-hmm. also means that there was a lot of people there. Mm-hmm. The, uh, now, they, this is the first Saturday veterans event in a while, I guess seven years, essentially, because Veterans Day has fallen on a Saturday this year. Mm-hmm. And so th- I think that's the reason I've never made it to one of the events before. I was, I've had to work. And um, as a teacher, it's easier to be in the classroom than it is to get a substitute and be out. And so a lot of times I've just kind of elected to remain at work. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Dad's not speaking this year. No, no. Uh, but he is attending because he is a regular attender. Uh, and he is a retired Army. Lieutenant Colonel. Lieutenant Colonel, 30 years, 25 years in the military. Uh, we spent most of that time as Army brats. Uh, neither of us were Loved able it. to follow in his footsteps. <laughs> no, but we have ROTC stories that we have to share. <laughs> in <another episode>. Yes. <laughs> and so this is kind of our, our volume test and, and a little bit of a description of, of why we're here, because we're not militia people for the for the most part. Uh, I think it's, it's more that, so that uh, we can get a better understanding of the militia mm-hmm. and also so that we can, uh, I guess, Control any misconceptions that they might have about us, because um, I, 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 for me, listening to the uh, the podcast, I actually enjoyed uh, the Appalachian podcast. They had um, Brian Brian Wood, who's going to be one of the keynote speakers today. Yes, did an excellent job. Mm-hmm. I was I was agreeing with him on several aspects of that interview, um, but there was you know uh, uh, the co-host who, who brought up some points that uh, I didn't quite agree with. Uh, regarding Black Lives Matter. So I wanted them to be able to put a face with somebody who is um, Black Lives Matter, yes. uh, liberal, um, progressive, mm-hmm. Democrat, insert all those. <laughs> Sometimes other- pejorative adjectives that are yes. added in. Yeah. And I, I've always felt like that's been a big part of what our activism is, is when people are like, they're the problem, is to be able to show up and go like, hey, I'm they. Yep. You know, let, let, let's talk a little bit. Let's see what exactly you think the problems are. And in a lot of instances, we're like, we're kind of agreeing. Yes. Like me and you both think the problem is somewhere else. Yes. It's not each other. And so this, again, I think is also the reason Misunderstood is a podcast. So this is, I, I think, our first opportunity to really stretch out and get a chance to listen to, speak to and reflect on groups that I think are misunderstood mm-hmm. and the militia, I think, definitely feels as though they've gotten a bad rap. Yeah, and I will say, since we've been here, they've been very welcoming. Um, you know, gone out of their way to make sure that we're comfortable yes. while we're here. So, yep, they helped us uh, <clears throat> post. So, one of the requirements of coming in and setting up is they asked us if we would keep in the theme of military veterans, 
And so for us, what that meant was highlighting the service of black soldiers who left Franklin County and joined the U.S. Army. It's a story that is undertold in this country and definitely in this county. And so we've got a lot of representation of that. And we came in with a poster that my father got from the Quartermaster Corps from Don Stivers that shows uh, General Grant and uh, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln looking out over train depots and the general of the quartermasters of, of the time. And down in the bottom corner, there's a group of black soldiers who were quartermaster soldiers at the time who were there. And man, I didn't realize how much of a quartermaster dad was until he started explaining what those troops were there to do. Like they're going to take the stuff off the trains oh, yeah. and they're going to put it on the wagons so the wagons can go out. And I was like, man, <laughs> I forgot this is what you did. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't go blah blah blah. It was I, it was pretty good for me, but I forget sometimes. Like growing up, I knew Dad had a job in the army, but a lot of time it was like, "What's your dad do for a living?" He armies. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that was what we thought. Now, what is it? That his MOS. His MOS was. Uh, you know, what? I don't know what his MOS is specifically. I know he did fuel. Yeah. And I, so. <clears throat> All oh, right, you we, we actually have our first guest jumping on. We'll make sure I got you sir. a familiar voice if you listen to uh, the um, 150th celebration episode. Which I've, I've apparently I got to go back and, and sound edit. So I'm really thankful that I've got some folks who were able to give me that heads up about the issues with the sound. Hopefully, we'll have that corrected this episode. They but, uh, cannot hear you. But well, we are interested. Hold on, long introduction while he gets ready. This is the Gary Dodson, um, Daddy Q's Barbecue, out here set up um, vendor for this uh, this event. He's got a, a delicious barbecue plate with. We ordered the the barbecue plate with the two sides. It has the the macaroni and cheese, uh, the pork barbecue. Um, Hoe cakes. I just found out what a hoe cake was. It, yes, it is. It is. Uh, back during my uh, pimp years, back when <laughs> I spent a little time out there. No. No, it's a funny story about that. Okay, before you start telling, okay. I'm going to pause and turn this completely off okay. in order for it to power. And so we'll be back. We can't afford not to record. Now I jumped in. Hey, that's fine. <laughs> now we, we were just talking about these uh, delicious hoe cakes that hoe we got cake. from Daddy Q's barbecue, hoe and we have cakes. Gary Dotson here say, on the mic. I did love these hoe cakes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't love these. Hoe <laughs> well, see, this, see, well, hey, you got to understand. You know, uh, when you go to your grandma's house and you hear about a hoe cake, <laughs> it's usually that that that, that cat faced piece of biscuit. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's part of what I was expecting. Yeah, this was the, more cornbread. That's that. I mean, that's the that's like the the, the quick. Okay. Version of okay. Okay. But okay. the original whole cake <laughs> origin is back, back like uh, when you work in the tobacco field or you know doing hay or whatever. Most of the workers used to take and carry cornmeal in their pocket. Okay. Or corn flour or whatever, and they'd be out there chopping back. And when it come lunchtime, what they'd do is they'd take their hoe that they work with and go down to the river or whatever source of water, wash their hoe off, build them a small fire. And take some water and pet that cornmeal out, 
and then put it on their hoe and hold it over top of the fire and cook it. Huh. Oh. So that's the reason why it's called a hoe cake. That I mean, makes a whole lot of sense. A whole lot of sense. Yeah, a whole lot of sense. Terrible puns. Now, now I'm making a whole lot of money. No, I'm just All right. Like, I hope so. I hope so. No, I wish I would, but uh, it's it's but the the barbecue that I do is the old pit master, the old slave pit master. Okay. Where you know uh, where the masters would have their slave, their head pit master, uh, fix up pork, um, and they they would actually build this big fire. And it was it wasn't in the ground per se. The the fire was in the ground, mm-hmm. but the they had this grate that they made um, and that they laid the hog over. Okay. And then they would they would roll that that hog over over top of that grate. And, you know they'd take rocks, beds of rocks and stuff like that, and then make make that fire, and then they put that hog on there. And uh, but oh. it's a mix of between how my grandfather used to cure hams and pork and the pit style. So you're getting the flavor of the cured meat and smoked meat, but you're also using a uh, type of style that you're you're actually uh, cooking it in the modern day form. Okay. Now I just ate and I'm getting hungry again. But <laughs> what you got to tell me though, please, please tell me. You are recording some of these things and posting them on the internet so we can see some of this process. Well, uh, it's I, not going to stop me because yeah. I'm not going to start cooking myself. I ain't <laughs> laying no grates, and, and yeah. but I would love no, to see this process. Well, that, that that process that's that's the process that's gone. I mean, for what I'm doing, that, I yeah, to, yeah. I, for what I'm doing, I have to ha- I have to be able to move it on a large scale. Mm-hmm. See, I'm not. I don't have a brick and mortar. Okay, you know, like a restaurant. Yes, you know, some of the other barbecue uh, places around here, uh, like in Roanoke and here in town. I can't really produce that much like mm-hmm. they can that fast. Um, I still want to keep some of the old way because when you get into a, a mass production like that, you you kind of cut some corners, which I had to cut a few corners, in order to, <laughs> you know, to be able to make it fast enough. But at the same time, I mean, I, I could tell the difference. You know, the more you corners you cut, the more yeah. you lose that that flavor and the history of it. So I'm trying to keep it as authentic as i can okay but trying to be able to service a lot of people one time what so was, is there now is there a recipe so can can you share any of your recipe on uh, say one I of mean, the whole I cakes can, or i can, I can share the, or your, your... The, the recipe involves meat okay for the whole cake <laughs> oh no for the whole cake yeah i mean that's is it cast iron yes you i mean uh or are you using a griddle well i'm using the griddle that's a cast iron griddle okay so um i don't have the stainless steel one i have a cast iron griddle that i'm using um Back in the old days, what they used to do is they used to have a cast iron pan and they'd put a little lard over in it and then they'd just... Yeah. Now, are you still lard? No, I'm not lard. I, okay. I mean, I actually, it's, it's, it's very little, very, very little oil. I, I try to do things to say, I mean, you know, nowadays people are a little more healthy. <laughs> yeah, we are. Think, you know, so... Uh, I stay away from that uh, that two pounds of butter <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> and for I, one one biscuit. You know, I'm just saying. And I see you kind of skirting it because I know you don't want to give away any trade secrets, well, things yeah, that no, are making. But I'm also going to tell you, I ain't going to cook this, and I don't think many of the people we li- listening to we going to come out. I wouldn't mind watching it getting cooked. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, mind hearing cool. about it, but I'm going to come out and buy it. But I, mean, I have a rub. Yeah, <laughs> I do have a rub. I say I, I do have a rub that I put okay. on there. But uh, what goes in the rub, I ain't going to take. Yeah, all right, <laughs> when. So do you rub overnight? Do you start? Nope. Uh, what I do is, what, what basically, uh, when I when I start cooking, I break out the meat and I I basically bill bill devote it. Okay, and you know, I, do you know what that is, right? The bill bill devote. 
Just smack it up, flip it, rub, rub it down. down. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm ready to make a shirt with that. You know, Danny Keys is going to smack it up, flip and rub that. See, down. I was worried we couldn't trust a girl with a big button smile. And so I, <laughs> oh, I was in the wrong direction. Oh, this girl's name's Sally. You know, her name is Sally, you know, because she's a sale. So, <laughs> so yeah, this, this butt right here, you, I mean, you're going to lick your fingers over. <laughs> okay. And so far, I have to agree. I, there's, we just had the pulled pork. And the baked beans. Y'all was mad because I didn't have them ribs, though. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Uh, but on, 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 on little events like this, I um, I usually don't really do the ribs because when you, when you get into ribs, people expect a certain quality. Well, yes. Yeah. So if you ain't got your ribs right, then, you know, people will let you know about it. And so, the, the timing. Because yeah. this isn't necessarily a, like, open all day event it's right. people are going to stop for a minute go listen to the speeches and then come back in yeah. and you can't just let that stuff sit <laughs> no you can't i mean that's i mean that's um that's what it is you should say that i mean I, i'm very particular when it comes to about how long my, my food i mean if i'm moving food then yeah I, you know I'll, I'll pump it out there but if i know that i'm gonna have some in between time I'd rather for you have to wait a few minutes mm-hmm. to get it because I want. I mean, this is this is not fast food. It's slow food. This mm-hmm. is it's a big difference when you can tell. It's just all right. I give you a good example. When you buy some French fries from a fast food place, <laughs> you gonna know if those fries were just made or if they've been sitting that's in that basket yep. for about ten uh. minutes or so. So I mean, that's that's kind of why I'm at. I mean, like okay. you sitting there and you like chewing on a car tire. I don't I don't want that because this is the first time I've seen, especially at a food truck, the the clicker like. Here, here's this. It's gonna buzz when your food's ready. Yeah, have, that was pretty paid. impressive. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, I appreciate it. Yes, yeah. me too. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I know how it is. I mean, and I I did the Fern Folk Life Festival okay. a few years back, and um, this is before I got those pages. And the the line was so long at my trailer, it was actually backed up out to forty. Oof. And I, I mean, I didn't have. I mean, I, I didn't expect that many people to be flocking towards me mm-hmm. and, I, and I can only cook so much food at one time <laughs> yes. and, I, and, and I'm like I'm pumping it out as fast as I can I went through like I went through like I forgot it was like almost I think it was like 200 pounds of chicken Oof. yeah in just a few hours and I'm like and I'm pumping it out as fast and it takes it takes about three hours for me to smoke chicken now do you smoke it whole or you, no, you quarter it first? In quarters. Okay. I, that, that year I sold chicken leg quarters and it took like three hours to do, you know, one batch. And that was a lot of chicken. Okay. So <laughs> now I am going, I'm going to try and steal some recipe ideas here. Cause for Thanksgiving, I'm planning on breaking the turkey up. I'm a, I'm a quarter it first you, give you and I'm going to smoke recipe. the wings. I give you the best recipe okay. for your, for your Thanksgiving dinner. Your best recipe for your turkey is to get Daddy Cues to smoke it. Ah, there it goes. Okay. <laughs> no, um, no. I mean, I, 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 there's a lot of people that that want to smoke food and and. Now, before we go any further, okay. is that a serious That's offer? A serious like, offer. can people call? Yes, they can. can you throw the phone number on yes, here? I'll try yes. and get it up as fast as I can. Throw yes. a phone number up that people can get a hold. Um, the best way, um, you could send an email uh, at Daddy Cues Barbecue. That's D A D D Y. QSBBQ at gmail.com. Uh, also, you can uh, send me a text or call 540-243-5617. Okay. All right. So um, uh, the best way to do it, or you can go on Facebook and find Daddy Q's Barbecue and send me a, a, a message through uh, Facebook Messenger. Okay. Well. And I was going to say the food must be good because uh, 
I took a couple of bites. My son had the plate. Yeah, they took 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 it away. I just I just saw him throw away the uh, the evidence. Took it away. And so now the next thing is, if you did want a turkey, Uh how much notice do I need to give you in order to have it ready for Thanksgiving? For Thanksgiving, if you can at least give me at least three to four days notice. Three to four days notice. I can have have it ready the day of uh, where you can pick it up if you want it hot. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to explain this to people right off. A lot of people want that. We had me and and one of my cousins had a long discussion about this. It's standing in the middle of Walmart. A lot of people, well, you know, when we was growing up, we didn't eat till about five or six o'clock in the mm-hmm. afternoon. Mm-hmm. And a whole lot of that was because usually during that day, um, we had things going on, especially but, but around my camp. It was a lot of farming things that was going on, you know, feeding cows mm-hmm. and whatnot. And then grandma, she's got to fix food for the whole family. Yep. So you're thinking about, you know, there's 11 children that she had and then all of their children. And we try to pile up all in one house, you know, so we had to move to the church. So then once we moved to the church, even more people, then that's when, <laughs> that's when like the, the, the rest of the, the church family and the, and the, and the, and the spread out families just starts coming. So that's even more food. Then it's like, well, y'all need to start bringing some dishes with y'all. So, um, but when you order a turkey from me, I can have it ready to have it ready for you by at least one o'clock. Okay. You know, um, I do do some delivery, but usually on that day, I'm not going anywhere. You're going to have to, you probably come by. But if you want it the day before, now I can't fix it. I can't fix this turkey to where you can smoke. I can smoke it for you. And then all you have to do is finish it off in the oven. Uh, See, that's what I was going to ask next. If if you wanted to fake it and order it in advance, Hey, would you give us the instructions to throw it in the oven and then, you know, everybody, yes. and is it okay to leave your name off at the end and pull it out and be like, look what I did, y'all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. hey, whatever. Because usually, usually. Hey, you got smoke flavor in the oven. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a secret recipe. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, I mean, so it's really, that's, that's as simple as it is. Mm-hmm. When you get it, you'll wrap it up and you put it in the oven and uh, you put it on. I'll tell you how, what, what the degree to put it on. And, Basically, you just leave it in there for about an hour, hour and a half, and Bob's your uncle. Okay, uh-huh. so th- that that's the plan. If you if you're ready for not ready for Thanksgiving, but want to look like you're ready, yeah, contact Daddy Q's. Now I will say this: it, it would help if you purchase your own turkey, and I will come and get it. Okay, and I will fix it. You okay. know, I will fix it for you. And right now, I'm gonna tell you now: Sam's Club they got a heck of a deal on them. And Walmart has a uh, pretty good deal. Oh, no, Kroger, excuse me. Kroger's have a really good deal on turkeys right now. Okay. So uh, if you're feeding a lot of people, you better you better be heading out to one of those two now, places. Now, see, I'm, I I like doing the turkey on my own because mm-hmm. we usually fry them. Okay. But I'm not a sides man. Like, could I come to you and be like, hey, man, I need you to hook up my sides. I, can, I need I some can, baked beans. I, can, I need the green beans. Yeah. I need the macaroni and cheese. And all, see, all my foods are, uh, except where, which I'm working on, I, and I, I, I'll divulge this a little bit. Uh, a couple of my new recipes that I'm going to introduce probably come 2024 is a smoked four cheese mac and cheese. Right now, my Ooh. mac and cheese is a four cheese. How but, can we get more cheeses in this? How <laughs> more cheese how in many, that four cheese? How many cheeses, Jerry? We've <laughs> got six cheeses. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm working on a smoked mac and cheese right now, which that's not uncommon. But with my flavor profile, it, it would be pretty bang. So, okay. All right. Yeah. And then, um, far as, uh, you know, which I know you, like your son, your son, he, when he come up, he was like, I want them fried potatoes and onions. Yep. 
See, a lot of my menu is based off of old school cooking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't see that type of stuff oh. in restaurants. I mean, it's, when people say comfort food, I mean, you don't get much more comfort than, than fried potatoes. potatoes and onions. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. you know, that's the reason why, you know, the mac and cheese, the four cheese, or mac and cheese and the fried potatoes and the hoe cakes. I mean, I had, I had a mob at the antique farm days one year because I could not make hoe cakes fast enough. Mm. So that's the right place for you in the right place. Yeah. And we're losing some of that. We're losing the grandmas. We really are. We're losing the grandmas that kind of kept those things going. So I'm glad that there's still places that we can get it. So thank you. I'll tell you what, I'm I'm glad that the dollar menus are going away because, you know, I used to hit them things up. I mean, dollar menus (laughs) ruined everybody. But now you can't get a dollar menu item for a dollar. No. No. (laughs) I don't even know. They call them the value menus. Well, but the the value is a. doesn't outweigh the, the cost that you actually paying internally. <laughs> yeah. that, that was a problem. But yeah. that, that dollar just don't work. It, even Dollar Tree trying to add S's to this dollars tree <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> did, you they got see, a plural. did you all see where the guy like placed the uh, McDonald's hamburger and fries? Like just let it sit out for a year. Oh yeah. And it didn't mold. Yeah. The preservatives. Like, it exactly the same. I, I it, mean, I would be going by this thing and I'm, I would look at this and I'd be like, what kind of shellacker did they use on this right now? And, yes. and the fact's like bugs didn't want to touch it. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> it's like, nah, man, I care about my body. <laughs> Maybe I should get a few of those things to throw it around my garden to keep the insects out of there. There you me. go. <laughs> this is a bug <laughs> But that's, I mean, that's pretty bad. But that, and that's one thing I can say, you know, when we're cooking, there's a certain type of uh, certain foods that we have to use because of the health department. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was up to me, you know, I would be going around to these local um, farmers and, and things like that. I mean, some places I can go, you know, um, but, you know, as long as they, the, as far as my meats go, they have to be USDA inspected. So don't worry about that, folks. I you're not getting it off my farm. <laughs> but I would be. Which I would be feels like a disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it would be because, I mean, I know what my, because I do raise animals. We um, know what you fed them. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we feed non-GMO feeds, okay. Uh, mainly because we raise them ourselves, and there's um, some local providers that we can get our seed from. Now, if if somebody wanted to purchase meat from you, well, that, could they that, do that, that through be, the that butcher would, or that would be through through my farm, okay. Uh, Walnut Knoll Farms, but I, I'm really not into doing the meat, right? okay. But there are several people around Franklin County who uh, have. Uh, uh, butcher shops or raising uh, animals for slaughter that, that uses those non-GMO. Yeah, I just started uh, purchasing from uh, this. It's actually a, a black-owned farm in Snow Creek. Uh, Martin. Martin family. Okay. But, Snow Creek? I live in Snow Creek and I, I've never heard of them. Um, they're somewhere near um, what is the uh, the Snow Creek uh, Rescue Squad? Uh-huh. They're somewhere near there. Okay. I'll, I'll, I, I've been, I haven't been to the uh, I caught them at the farmer's market, but I've been told that they actually set up somewhere uh, off of uh, Snow Creek Road. Okay. I'd have to look in there. I mean, I, li- I literally live like right around the corner from there. So. Okay. I mean, that just goes to show how busy I've been. I'm not even keeping up with my own little neighborhoods. <laughs> but, that's I mean, right. that's the way it is. I mean, especially when you're doing this kind of this business right yep. here, man, you have to you have to, you have to move pretty pretty frequently. And um, yep. I, Daddy, I will say Daddy Q's have been picked up by a carnival, uh, so fun entertainment out of North Carolina. All right. So uh, 2024, we'll be on the road with them a whole lot. Um, that, and they will be, I think, 
Don't quote me on this. It's unconfirmed at the moment, but uh, I think that they will be doing the Franklin County Egg Fair come next year. Okay. Maybe. That's not. I mean, that now that could change. I mean, don't don't quote me. Into, to, that's a done deal. But as of I know right now that that is what is being looked at. So I, I guess that'd be the best way to say that. So that's that I can definitely say that. <laughs> All right. Well, keep so keep your eyes open for that. Yep. 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 But uh, I'll leave everybody with this note. Uh, This this note right here that uh, if you if you do see people who are trying to leave or trying to have or something that is trying to be keeping the history of something like barbecue or whatever it is, it is you need to at least not let it die because we we have a lot of histories that's being that is just dying. Mm because of the technology we have today. So um, just please, you know, people, especially people our age, man, we, we're probably about the last generation who knows about how to do stuff the old-fashioned way, yeah. like the old telephones with the six, seven-foot, ten-foot cords on. <laughs> you know, they, they, look at, they look at one of them rotary phones, and they be like, what is that? <laughs> oh, my daughter. So yet my wife uh, had to pull out the old corded phone because she got to go check the, the phone box. Got, need one yeah. to plug in. So she had it sitting out and my daughter picks it up and goes, look at this phone from the 1900s. And I was going to complain, but she's right. Yes, yeah, she's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, man, that hurts more than I want to admit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, uh, my, my middle school say my dad was born in the late 1900s. <laughs> How dare Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Well, those those late nineteen hundreds, I was coming out of school, you know. Well, mid the mid nineteen late nineteen hundreds. Yep, the mid nineties of the nineteen hundreds. <laughs> but oh. you know, kids nowadays, man, it they don't they don't understand the the concept of house parties. My neighbor, <laughs> his daughter had a birthday party, right? So all the youngsters was up there, you know. First, the song choices that they had, I was trying to understand. Oh, and yeah. then, two, the, the reactions they were doing, it was like everybody was just standing. I mean, the walls hold themselves up, people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That that makes me feel like some things haven't changed. <laughs> well, I, I mean, back when, now, now, back when I was in high school, I mean, we would Why have parties. We yeah. had to have them in fields because we'd be dancing so much. <laughs> everybody be bringing stuff in somebody's house. So, and then you'd be all hot and sweaty and stuff. These kids ain't even broke a sweat. They just standing there looking at each other. And then they and then when they play a song, they just stand there swaying back and forth singing the music. Okay, I can get that, but what is the music about? <laughs> you came here to party. Come yeah, on, kid. Uh, just oh man, come on. You know your parents used to say the same thing. Yeah, what is this rap music y'all are listening to? They ain't saying nothing. Yeah, but we was dancing to it. <laughs> it's the difference. We was actually grooving to it. These kids are just they just standing there, you know. Goody Mob messed that whole thing up. Y'all remember Goody Mob? Yeah, right? of course. People don't dance no more. All, All they, they do, do is this. this. Now they, now I don't even know what they doing. <laughs> <laughs> they just, they just we not can't, doing. We it. can't even get this out of them yeah, no more. Can't even get that. Like, <laughs> I wasn't big on dancing until Fat Joe brought the. The, the rock away, rock away yeah, yeah. Lean all you had to do was, was lean like, back. I can, do that. I can do that. I can lean back. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Petey Pablo. That was probably the last bit where he tried to, you know, 
pull that shirt off and spin it right your head like a helicopter. I'm like, no, because some of y'all need to leave y'all shirt on. Hey, I was one of them. No, 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 the ones, no, see, if you was one of them, you'd be the one that actually be pulling your shirt off. No, these guys, these, yeah, you like, no, you do not need to be the first one pulling your shirt off. So, but anyway, oh. I, I'm going to, I got to bounce around. I'm going to hit, I want to kind of spread the love a little bit. So yes. if, you, if you're in the area, people, well, I don't know. Y'all probably not going to air this right now, are you? No, uh, we're not going to air it until, uh, okay, okay. probably well, I'm Tuesday, gonna say this. Wednesday. Y'all missed, y'all missed something, you know, y'all yeah, absolutely. To, to really, to really learn a few things because that's one thing I wish, and especially in the African-American community, will learn more about your freedoms and your rights <laughs> and definitely learn about your constitutions because Believe it or not, you know, us as black people have been led astray. And I, I blame that in the JFK era. Because, oh, of the, I mean, if you think about it, black people really wasn't Democrats until JFK came on. We were actually Republicans. Well, yeah, yeah, that, for, that for a long time. We don't have loyalty to a party. Well, really, a we, parties we don't, don't have loyalty to, to their own parties. Yeah. So, I mean, really, the parties... Really, all it is is a label. I mean, it's a it's a label to try to put you into a into a category, mm-hmm. you know. I, and I guess the hope is because part of the reason we do we show up like I'm liberal. I'm a liberal Democrat, uh, Black Lives Matter supporting. So like showing up at, at a lot of these events is also about making sure there's a human face to this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, on the other end is knowing where opposition is necessary. Yeah. Right. So. How to invite more people into the Democratic Party so that the Democratic Party makes decisions based on the people there well, gets see, to be very important. That's and this is what I'm, I'm going. That's what I'm talking about. How much do we really know about the Democratic Party? How far can you go back if you would really mm-hmm. look at your history of the Democratic yes. Party? You know. I'm gonna say that I'm not gonna. I'm gonna let you learn it for yourself because I mean, in that now this is the true saying, and I got this from the older folks. Back in the day, if a message needed to be passed, what did the people do to keep it from black people? Put it in the book. book. <laughs> we have that knowledge now, and it's free. Yeah. We have that. You 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 just can't go off of what you're seeing right now. You need to yes. go back. You need to find at the beginning. You need to go almost back, pretty much back to the beginning and see how we progressed because yes. we started out as Republican. Yep. Now, how did we become Democrat? Because and can anybody answer that question? Yes. Okay. Yes. Answer that. Let me see how close you are. I would say when the Republican Party put, um, oh gosh, what is it? The for presidential candidate, the one from Arizona up as the presidential candidate. Okay. Against, maybe uh, who was he against? He was the only Southern. Uh, he was the only Southern person that voted against the Civil Rights era and the, the Civil Rights amendments. Mm-hmm. And the Republican Party put him in as the, the main person. In addition, I think Martin Luther King Jr. pushed a lot of people over completely because Martin Luther King Jr. was a Republican. Right. Martin Luther King Jr. brought a lot of people over in his working with JFK and working on that civil rights bill. Right. I think the civil rights bill was the big piece of legislation that brought most of us over. Right. Now, the, now that you brought JFK up, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one of the biggest things that people fail to remember about JFK is JFK went against his own party, mm-hmm. which was the Democrats. 
because he stood up for African Americans. Yes. Okay. Y'all remember that? Did y'all even know that? But also not very well. Not very the well. The truth is, was- Lyndon Johnson did a better job of pushing most of those policies through than John F. Kennedy did. Right. Um, but see, Alec Baldwin, but, but James Baldwin, Alec Baldwin, but James yeah. Baldwin uh, used to complain about JFK's kind of dragging. Right. Uh, but, 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 but the optic of it still, the, the main optic of it is he went against mm-hmm. his party. You know, you, I mean, sometimes it's the sleight of hand. See, that's what that's what. Well, what we, we, we know that that's when the parties kind of switched. Right. So well, that's when that's when most Republicans, be, most Democrats became Republicans. Republicans. No, old timey Democrats became Republicans. What I would say, that's part that that whole no, kind of going against the party. No, no. Oh, about, oh, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah all, all the ones that were in favor of you know segregation yeah. and Jim Crow, they became ah. Republicans, and and we, you know, trying to gain rights became ah. Democrats. So we we followed well, we did, followed, the, Democrats, we followed the party remember. that benefited us the yes, most. Well, you got to remember the Democrats were the one who were in favor for the Jim Crow and the segregation. Yeah. They but, were until yeah. they switched. And that's kind of when we went on board. Well, did they really switch though? That's when I we think started as, to as right. switched as, as switched as they could be. Yeah, I, I think even even currently, I'm a current Democrat in part because I believe a Democrat would vote for a Republican idea if it was good. Yes, and I think that's important because I think there are some very good Republican ideas, and if. The person I elect to Congress can't vote for that idea just because a Republican brought it in. That's crazy. Well, the, the biggest thing that I, I'm worried about is if you will think about it, it says we grew up in a Christian home. Mm-hmm. How much Christianity is left in the Democratic Party anymore? Because I, I, that's a that's a big thing that I'm worried about. It, it is. I, but because we, you think about it, you got Democrats yeah. who is pushing for abortions. You got Democrats that is pushing for uh, same-sex marriages, which goes oh. against. Uh, yeah, they go well, against see, a lot I, of the. Christian I'm very members. Christian, and yeah. I think yeah. both of those things should be legal. I agree. Well, I didn't say yeah. that. What, what, what you think? <laughs> but I mean, you could be a Christian, but how? I mean, but if you actually think about it, did the Bible tells you plain as day? And you know, most uh, I don't know if it's all that plain. Which part tells us which part plain is well, day? When, when it says no man should lay with another man, that's about as plain as you get. Yeah, but it also doesn't say no woman should lay with another woman. That is true. It's too, very but, specific to yeah, gay men. Yeah. So are we going to just fight? I think. Gay it, I men? think. I think it meant in mankind is what. They but the saying. thing is, it, it, in the same verse, the next thing it starts talking about is bestiality, and it's very bestiality. clear there: mm-hmm. man should not lie with beast. Yep. And woman should not lie with beast. So it See, is very it specific. specific about right. the woman. I get what you're saying. And so I but think, I think I, I, like I said, I think it was what it But see, a lot of the interpretations have been lost. Yes. <laughs> a lot. I mean, there's no denying that. But I think what they was trying to say was mankind shouldn't lay with mankind. I mean, you know, well, man shouldn't lay with man and mankind. And I, I think that is an important decision to be made individually. I well, it, uh, personally... I, I have just decided not to get gay married over my life, and it has worked out great for right, me. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the, at the very end, the very and end, I, we gotta, I hope to extend that same option. That. We have yeah, to I answer hope. for that. So, right, you know, and I, I, but that I, doesn't make a person. It does not make a person a, a, a bad person or, mm-hmm. or or have any kind of that. Uh, their life choice is their, their right. life choice. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't speak for them. Yes. And when when it gets to the end of that of our road. Mm-hmm. The only person that can stand for me is me. Is, yes. <laughs> so yes, and yeah. I think that goes very well with that First Amendment of not um, respecting any religion, not having 
the government respect or enforce any religion. And again, I think that's another reason why I'm I am a Democrat. Yeah, yeah. Just, be, just be careful, folks. Just be careful with what it you is. do because I mean, I mean, we're teaching our children mm-hmm. wrong things. Uh, I think we're teaching our children acceptance and tolerance. What's uh, in love? Yes. God is love. Teach your children to love. Love your neighbor. Well, and I mean, what does loving your neighbor look like? Go that well, extra I, I'm mile. Not, I'm, I'm not really speaking in that. I, I just, it's just like um, the, what is this? The the furry things? The furry? I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really get it. I don't, I, I don't understand. But I think that, I well, like, I think cause that's it? a media thing. You think that's a media thing? I, well, I I've mean, never, I've never seen it in, in high school. In, in our high me, school? Yeah. Have you seen it? The, the children are talking about it. Yeah, yeah but I think that's we, a media thing. Yeah, I think that's a media thing. No, the thing. kids are actually like, coming home. They had a big fuss. Of, you don't remember this? No, we, we, I, we I heard the story. It, it's more of a myth or a That's isolated what I think. Well, how many parents have actually went to go see it? I I have kids that have been in the high school yeah, for the last it. six years. Okay, and, and they have not seen witnessed or experienced uh, yeah. this I'm, story that everybody <laughs> keeps bringing up. Okay, well, I, I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of media push, but I think again that media push is to keep us fighting. I vote yeah, for Democrats, that, yeah, hoping that they will vote f- with Republicans on things that are important to me. Mm-hmm. But if they're fighting about whether see, or not they're furries I mean, in the high school, it keeps us from getting together. Yeah, well, that's the reason why I say the parties is just—I don't understand why we need parties because we should come together and want to come. Well, that, that one, I'm, I'm a little—that worries me. I don't, I don't think we need to come together. On board. I'd like to see more parties. Are we starting? Okay. okay, so we're going to close out. Thank you so much for the heads up. All right, we're going to close out. We're going to catch some of the good things. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you so much. We have the wick of missing and nothing for play. Give me a savior that takes me away. Give me a blanket and a space for my head. When time descends like an old stage.
takes me away. Give me a blanket and a space for my head. When time descends like an old stage curtain on the back of my eyelids, I'll be in a place instead. When time descends like an old stage curtain on the that our volunteers can be well regulated that is prepared to volunteer for service in a constitutional militia should a militia ever be mustered by lawful authorities. Who are those authorities? In the Commonwealth of Virginia, in our own uh, state constitution, and in our subsequent statutes, there are several provisions. They generally revolve around the governor being the commander-in-chief. And so the governor has the ability to call up the militia. But he can do that in several ways. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But there's also a provision for our local sheriff to utilize a portion of the unorganized militia. And I will directly quote from that state statute as well. There are politicians and Commonwealth's attorneys that disagree with some of the things that I'm saying. Our argument needs to be brought before the Supreme Court because their opinion is just that, an opinion. And when they render it, they omit many of the facts that I'm going to tell you today. In fact, if we look at the history of the Supreme Court decisions, recent history, where they utilize text, history, and tradition in order to analyze our rights, I believe you will see at the conclusion of my speech that there is text, history, and tradition for lawful militia service in the Commonwealth of Virginia in addition to most of the other states. And right before I get into it, I'm going to I'm going to deal with and keep this at the top of your mind. There's a couple of decisions of the Supreme Court that are important and need to be remembered. One of which is called the Staples decision, and it ruled that semi-automatic arms are ubiquitous and in common use. The Heller decision said that arms in common use for lawful purposes, and that's an important part, cannot be banned. And the Bruin decision, which talks about the text, history, and tradition, and that there are considerations that must be taken in determining the constitutionality of a law. So what are we doing? What we're doing is we've, we've created an organization for citizens so that they can be well-regulated. Because the Second Amendment of the Constitution states a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What that means is, in order for citizens to keep and bear arms, we know the court through Heller has already determined, Heller and McDonald, that individuals have a, have a right to bear arms for their own personal defense. But that little phrase about a well-regulated militia 
shows you the duality of the Second Amendment. And the founders meant to include another right. And that other right was the right of service in the militia. By including that, that phrase before the comma, they also gave us an obligation or a duty. It says a well-regulated militia. In other words, in order for us to serve in a militia, we are obligated, it is our duty that we are well-regulated because it is necessary to the security of the free state. So who determines how we are well-regulated? Well, that happened in the document of the Constitution itself. And I'll be talking about that momentarily. But you needed to keep that kind of at the back of your mind. These recent decisions and what's going on currently are going to affect what we're doing is going to have an effect on these recent decisions. That's my hope. <clears throat> we the people do ordain and establish this Constitution and alone may amend it in either the state legislatures or conventions. Blackstone taught, whenever a question arises between society at large and any magistrate vested with powers originally delegated by that society, it must be decided by the voice of society itself. There is not upon the earth any other tri tribunal to resort to. Otherwise, the mere agents could define their own authority in defiance of their principles. And in this case, what Blackstone is referring to as agents, agents are the duly elected representatives of the people. They are our agents. We lend them our power. Our rights exist without them. Our rights pre-existed the Constitution. Our rights come from the Creator, and the Constitution recognizes and affirms those rights in the Bill of Rights. That is an important distinction between a constitutional republic and a democracy. Setting the political order upside down in defiance of their principles. For we the people to govern ourselves, they themselves must interpret their own supreme law with authority and finality. If public officials interpret the law, then they rule the people. If Congress, for whatever reason, neglects, fails, or refuses to make adequate provisions for that purpose, and if the several states shirk their responsibilities in this regard, then, then are the laws to remain unexecuted and the union to suffer anarchy and possible disillusion as a result? Or are we the people embodied in the militia not entitled to do what Congress and the state should have done and to call themselves forth to perform the mission the Constitution requires of them? That's written by Dr. Edwin Vieira. He holds multiple degrees from Harvard University. He's a constitutional scholar, and I consider him the preeminent scholar on Second Amendment issues. He's argued several cases before the Supreme Court and won. So when people ask, well, what's the source of this idea? Where, where does this idea come from that you're arguing? He's the primary author of this idea. And everything that follows is because of his idea that I just expressed here. Uh, he wrote a book, it's called The Sword and the Sovereignty. You can only get it online now in the form of a CD. It's 2,600 pages long. 
it explains the entirety of the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment. So if you feel like a little light reading, that's a good source to pick up. Uh, he has some other books that he read that are that he's written that are much shorter, and, and I endorse those books as well. Um, I read that in its entirety, in addition to uh, a lot of things that I'm going to quote here today. So recently, there was a Supreme, uh, there was a United States Appellate Court decision in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, Judge Wood said, everyone can agree that a personal handgun used for self-defense is one of those arms that law-abiding citizens must be free to keep and bear. The state of Illinois has decided to regulate what, what they call assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, a decision that is valid only if the regulated weapons lie on the military side of the line and thus are not within the class of arms protected by the Second Amendment. That's interesting. Nowhere in the Second Amendment does it draw a distinction between military arms or, or small arms for citizens, and yet this judge seems to make up out of whole cloth this argument. But it's based on an older argument, which we'll get to. Using the tools of history, the tradition to which the Supreme Court directed us in Heller and Bruin, we conclude that the state and the affected subdivisions have a strong likelihood of success in the pending litigation. We therefore vacate the injunction issued by the District Court of Appeals. So this is Illinois' assault weapons ban. The Circuit Court has said, well, certain categories of firearms are just meant for the military. Citizens aren't supposed to have them. Have them. Right? So um, we're not going to put a stay on this, and the case continues. In the meantime, Illinois can enact uh, its, its law. The failure of both Congress and the states properly to maintain the militia of the several states. Uh, in the mid, middle of the 1800s, uh, Justice Joseph's story uh, said this, Though the importance of a well-regulated militia would seem so undeniable, it cannot be disguised that among the American people there is a growing indifference to any system of militia discipline and a strong disposition from the sense of its burdens to be rid of all regulations. How is it practicable to keep the people duly armed without some organization? It's difficult to see. There is certainly no small danger that indifference may lead to disgust and disgust to contempt and thus gradually undermine all of the protection intended by the Second Amendment of our natural Bill of Rights. A Republican, whoops, the Constitution itself nowhere creates the militia of the several states or authorizes the states or Congress to do so. It merely recognizes the militia in the self-same way it treats the several states themselves as establishments that pre-existed its ratification that it incorporated into the form which it found them in and for the function they performed at the time and that it was presumed will continue in that form and for that function into the indefinite future. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a republican form of government. The Constitution treats the militia of the several states as perpetual in existence and permanent in authority and character. Therefore, because each of the several states must maintain her own militia, and because every state of this union must be guaranteed a republican form of government, then simply per, per force of constitutional logic, 
a Republican form must encompass militia in every state. A Republican form, after all, signifies more than simply a representative government, more even than a constitutional government. Self-evidently, it prohibits every form of tyranny, as the Founding Fathers learned from John Locke. Tyranny is the exercise of power beyond right. Clauses 15 and 16 of the Constitution. This came before the Second Amendment. Clause 15, the Congress shall have power to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. Words matter, so let's look at the words. Congress has the power, did they say to create the militia? No, they said to call forth the militia. There is a presupposition. It is presupposed that the militia exists for Congress to be able to call it forth. Congress is admitting they do not have the power to create militia. The militia already exists. It is a recognition of that right. Congress shall have power to provide for organizing. They shall have the power for arming and disciplining the militia and for governing such a part of them as may be employed in the service of these United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of officers, the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. What does that mean? That, mean, that means there was a big argument between two groups of people. When you studied in school and learned about the constitutional conventions, I'm sure your teacher talked about the great, the great compromise, the, the three-fifths compromise, and how that seemed to really occupy the minds of the founding fathers. Uh, the reality is the militia was the object of most of their discussions far more than any of the other issues that arose during the constitutional conventions. And this division of powers that existed between the federal government and the states had to come to some kind of compromise or conclusion. Because <clears throat> the Federalists said, well, we've tried this assemblage of states, and it didn't work out because when the president needed to call upon the militia, not every state responded. So the president has to have the authority to call forth the militia. And Congress, and when he calls them forth, they should be trained to a certain minimum standard, so he has an expectation as to how they're going to perform. And so Congress said, well, we need to make sure that we maintain the power to establish regulations. And by regulations, they meant the way that they discipline and train the troops, not putting rules on the states as to when and how the militia can be called forth. The Congress shall have the power to arm them, which meant if the state militia showed up and their arms weren't proper for military service, the federal government could offer them arms to discipline them, meaning if they showed up and they were drunken or slovenly, slovenly uh, they could impart military justice on them. And so everything else was reserved for the states. So the states have the authority to appoint the officers of the militia and to train the militia to meet the well-regulated standard established by Congress.
Benjamin Doss wrote to the founders, the militia was the great bulwark of our liberties and independence. The term militia appears in the Constitution four times in three separate clauses, a fifth time in the crucial to ratification Second Amendment, and a sixth time in the Fifth Amendment. Between the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, it features four times more than commerce, armies, navies, army or armies, navy, and religion and religious. Once more than jury, and the same number of times as tax. So you know militia was very important because they mentioned it the same amount of times as tax. It also receives extended analysis in six Federalist Papers and referenced in eight others. This was the great divide between the Founding Fathers, between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The militia functioned as a constitutional ejection seat. The Founders specifically sought to ensure the militia's loyalty to the states by giving the states training authority and the authority to commission militia officers. If the federal government became tyrannical, the militia as an institution primarily loyal to states rather than the federal government could eject the tyrant. Of course, nothing in the Constitution made the militia's use mandatory. Congress could displace the militia by authorizing a large standing army. And eventually, that's exactly what it did. When it did so, reliance on the militia ceased, and the militia clause's checking function fell dormant. But that right still exists. It wasn't taken away. It wasn't made unlawful. There's no statute that made it illegal. It was simply made difficult to exercise. The militia of the founders operated quite differently than today's militia. Whereas the professional military prizes its distinctiveness, the militia of the founders lived among and trained with their communities. Although the professional military has usually represented only a tiny fraction of citizens at the founding, every voter aged 18 to 45 served in the militia. While a professional ethos permeates today's military, for the founders, militia service was like jury duty, a duty of citizenship, a chance for amateurs to counterbalance professionals, and although certainly a source of pride, not a citizen's primary identity. They also believed only the economic independence of the citizen and his ability and willingness to become a warrior were dependable protections against corruption and coercion. Accordingly, Republican theorists idealized the citizen-soldier as the essential foundation of a republic. In the English context, this meant the celebration of the independent armed yeoman. In Harrington's view, a yeoman militia became the ideal vehicle for cultivating the sorts of virtue Republican self-rule required. The militiaman, armed and trained, could assert his independence and develop a love for liberty. Simultaneously, the act of collecting trained, cultivated civic identity and prepared citizens for political life. As Harrington declared, only the armed freeholder was capable of independence and virtue. Republicans understood militia service to buttress civic and political capacity. By contrast, the regular army drained it. As such, standing armies became subjects of suspicion, fit tools for empowering tyrants, in contrast to the rugged militiaman who developed Republican self-reliance. 
The militia came to symbolize the responsibilities and rights of free men. Men who shirked military life were liable to surrender freedom for comfort. Men who served in the military too long lost connection with their community and its civilizing influences. These Republican theorists portrayed militia service as intrinsic to self-rule. Through a militia, the people could acquire the qualities required for Republican life. Without a militia, civic virtue would wither and the people almost certainly would collapse back into subjugation. The English politician James Burg made this point explicitly. In his 1775 tract, Political Disquisitions, Burg argued that the British people, having forgotten the military virtues of their ancestors, now live precariously and at discretion. In other words, the loss of militia culture rendered the Englishman ripe for subjugation. Berg's American audience took his message to heart. Those who received his first printing of that of his tract included John Adams, George Washington, Samuel Chase, John Dickinson, Silas Dean, John Hancock, Thomas Mifflin, James Wilson, and Thomas Jefferson. So the founders were quite understanding. They understood the values of republicanism and the importance of militia to citizenry. So when they sat down on July 2nd to have a vote on this document, all of that was running through their minds. And they wrote this. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the cause which impelled them to the separation. So the founders are making a statement. It is an admission of their worldview. And their worldview is that all rights emanate from God, the Creator. They, they don't come from government because rights that come from government can be taken away. They're not truly rights. But if rights come from the Creator, it's man's responsibility to preserve those rights. And the founders knew that when they wrote this part. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely, likely to affect their safety and happiness. When a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invites a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. So the founders knew 
believed that rights came from God. And it was government's job to protect those rights. And when it failed to protect them or infringe on them, it was the duty of the people. It was their right to alter or abolish that government and replace it with one that did their bidding, that defended their rights. This is a very unique document because up until that time in the world, there was no other document like it. There was never a recognition anywhere else, even in the Magna Carta, even in the common rights of Englishmen that gave, no, that recognized that our power, our rights are ours and that we lend it to a government. They're ours because of, by birth, the creator gave them to us. And that's an essential belief to a constitutional republic. On October 26, 1774, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, observing the British military buildup, deemed their militia resources to be insufficient. They recommended to the militia that they form themselves into companies of Minutemen who should be equipped and prepared to march at the shortest notice. These Minutemen were to consist of one quarter of the whole militia to be enlisted under the direction of field officers divided into companies consisted of 50 men. The privates were to choose their captains from amongst themselves and subalterns and these officers were to form the companies into battalions and choose the field officers to command the same. Hence, the Minutemen became a body distinct from the rest of the militia, and by being more devoted to military exercise, they acquired skill in the use of arms. More attention than formerly was likewise bestowed on the training and drilling of the militia. While that was happening, the Founding Fathers recognized the, 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 the conflict that was approaching. And so, when what they did was they formed specifically George Mason, Colonel George Mason, who lived in Fairfax County, uh, and George Washington, Colonel George Washington, they formed an independent company called the Fairfax County Independent Company of Volunteer Militia. They did that for the purpose, well, I'll go ahead and read their charter to you from the papers of George Mason. In this time of extreme danger in our country and threatened with the destruction of our civil rights and liberty and all that is dear to British subjects and freemen, we subscribers taking into our serious consideration the present alarming situation of all the British colonies upon the continent as well as our own, being sensible of the expediency of putting the militia of this colony upon a more respectable footing and hoping to excite others by our example have voluntarily, freely, and cordially entered into the following association, which we each of us for ourselves respectively, solemnly promise and pledge our honors to each other and to our country to perform, that we will form ourselves into a company not exceeding 100 men by the name of the Fairfax Independent Company of Volunteers, making a choice of our own officers to whom for the sake of good order and regularity we will pay due submission that we will meet at such times and places in this county as our said officers chosen by a majority of the members as soon as 50 have su subscribed shall appoint and direct for the purpose of learning and practicing the military exercise and discipline 
dress in a regular uniform of blue, turned up with buff, with plain yellow metal buttons, buff waistcoat and breeches, white stockings and furnished with a good flint lock, bayonet, sling cartouche box, and tomahawk, and 50 gun flints. Hey, that's high capacity. At least that we will use our utmost endeavors as well at the muster of said company as by all other means in our power to make ourselves masters of the military exercise and that we will always hold ourselves in readiness in case of necessity, hostile invasion or real danger of the commonwealth of which we are members to defend the utmost of our power, the legal prerogatives of our sovereign King George III and the just right and privileges of our country, our posterity, and ourselves upon the principles of the British Constitution. What these men did was groundbreaking. It was earth shattering. They did not have the approval of the House of Burgesses. They did not have the approval of the Crown. They basically said, we have the right to train, to form a company, to learn the military arts and practices, to be well-regulated, well-disciplined, in preparation of a time when we may be needed. Because it's all right to be able to defend ourselves. And so utilizing the history of the Fairfax Independent Company of Volunteers, we charted our own organization, following their example. In the Militia Acts of 1777 in Virginia, uh, they were extensive and they talked specifically about the arms and accoutrements that each individual citizen was supposed to bring with them for militia service. Arms suitable for militia service. All civilians were expected to provide their arms. The state did not provide them. That's because individuals have the right to keep and bear arms given to them by the creator, not the government. So, we wrote this resolution, a resolution to incorporate an independent company of volunteer militia. Whereas the natural right of self-defense with arms belongs both to the individual and to the people of this county collectively. And this natural right is recognized in Article 1, Section 13 of the Virginia Constitution, which describes militia as the body of the people trained to arms. It is in our own state constitution. Militia's definition is the body of the people trained to arms and declares such to be a free state's proper, natural, and safe defense. And this natural right is also recognized in the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So here's our mission statement. The mission of Franklin County Militia Incorporated is to educate, organize, and train citizens in Franklin County, Virginia in the safe, lawful, and effective use of firearms for personal defense and public safety, in the preparation for, response to, and recovery from natural and man-made disasters, and in the fundamentals and exercise of the human and civil rights and duties belonging to all members of the community. Under no circumstances will Franklin County Militia tolerate members who advocate or commit crimes or criminal violence 
terrorism or discrimination in any form against those whom we are sworn to protect. We seek to advocate for constitutionally affirmed natural rights and facilitate communities of like-minded citizens to organize in furtherance of Franklin County militia objectives for the purpose of making the local militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms, well-regulated, or in good working order, such being necessary to the security of a free state and its proper natural and safe defense. That's what we're all about. Here's the objectives. Franklin County Militia Objectives. One, to advocate and work to achieve the ability of the Franklin County Militia to legally operate and carry out the lawful functions of individual citizens and groups of citizens to be a ready, willing, equipped, and able body of citizenry that can respond to assist the lawful authorities of our county to serve in the unorganized militia should it ever be mustered for action as established in the state United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 13 of the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Two, to prepare any eligible citizen, our members, our families, and our communities to survive any natural or man-made disaster, any war or conflict, and defend ourselves and our property against any aggression, assault, unlawful seizure, or theft by any entity. Training will not be limited to, but may include U.S. Army basic and advanced infantry skills, marksmanship, firearm safety, first aid, radio communications, orienteering, search and rescue, long-term food storage, water treatment, food production, animal husbandry, homesteading skills, and physical fitness to organize our communities and our members into groups of like-minded citizens for their benefit. Three, to work to improve our relations with the community at large and the local elected public servants, to seek out opportunities to serve our communities, to always advance the cause of liberty and the Founders' principles as stated in the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, to preserve and defend the natural rights granted to us by the Creator. Four, to work to improve relations and create a framework of cooperation with other constitutional county militias in the Commonwealth of Virginia, to be able to respond to lawful requests for mutual aid. Five, to work with other groups of like-minded citizens to achieve any of the above objectives. A militia infantry company should develop the necessary skills to accomplish these objectives. Training for these skills is an important part of volunteer service in an unorganized militia company in order to fulfill the constitutional mandate to be well-trained and well-regulated militia. Constitutional guarantees regarding the militia and the right to keep and bear arms. That a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper natural and safe defense of a free state. Therefore, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That standing armies in a time of peace should be avoided as dangerous to liberty. And that in all cases the military should be under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. Article 1, Section 13 of Virginia Constitution. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. 
The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's the Second Amendment of the Constitution. Franklin County Militia Incorporated is an independent company of volunteer militia organized as a Virginia non-stock corporation for charitable purposes. We are not calling ourselves a militia. We are statutorily statutorily defined subcategory of militia. United States Code and Virginia State Statutes define the members of a militia. I'll be getting to that shortly. We're not calling ourselves a militia. We are all a part of the militia. That was a right affirmed in the Constitution. The FCM has organized itself using the command and organizational structure that generally corresponds to that of a light infantry rifle company in the United States Army with the addition of staff functions normally found at the battalion and brigade levels along with support and enabler components. The FCM recognizes the natural and constitutional rights of all citizens of the United States, regardless of their race, religion, creed, nationality, gender, or national origin. No member of the FCM may engage in any activity or conduct with the intent to impair or infringe upon the natural and constitutional rights of any other citizen. The FCM, as an incorporated subset of the militia, exists for all lawful charitable purposes under the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of Virginia. As a subset of constitutional militia, the FCM is subject to the lawful orders of the lawful authorities in the Commonwealth of Virginia and of the United States when called into federal service by the president, governor, or sheriff. Neither the FCM nor its members may undertake any activity with knowledge of or intent to cause a further or further a civil disorder. No member of the FCM may assemble with one or more persons for the purposes of training, with practicing with, or being instructed in the use of any firearm, explosive, or incendiary device, or technique capable of causing injury or death to persons, intending to employ such training for use in or in furtherance of a civil disorder. Well, wait a minute. Those are all the things that we train. I mean, that's the point of being a well-regulated militia. But we're not doing it in furtherance of, for the purpose of, with the intent of creating a civil disorder. It's not our intent. We're exercising our constitutional right to be well-regulated, that is, well-trained. And in doing so, it ensures our right to maintain ownership of firearms suitable for militia service. What are those firearms? Those firearms are semi-automatic firearms that are currently being advocated to be banned. Standard capacity magazines. AR-15s, AK pattern rifles, anything that's semi-automatic that has a detachable magazine. There are, there are organizations, people in this country that want to take them away. Our argument is based on arms suitable for militia service, the arms that were left after the 1934 National Firearms Act, after the 1968 Gun Control Act, after the Hughes Amendment, after FOPA, Whatever's left to us is semi-automatic firearms. And, and our claim is they are the most suitable firearms 
for service in the militia. So if we are, we have an obligation to be well regulated. If we are well regulated, that means we have to have the arm suitable for service in the militia. So this is a different argument than any other argument that has been presented thus far. All of the arguments have stated an individual right to ownership of certain categories of firearms. But as I told, said to you earlier, I read the decision of the Seventh Circuit Court where they said, well, no, 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 certain firearms are only sort of suitable for military use. Okay, the founders knew that. They foresaw that. And that's why the part before the comma exists. A well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state. So in order to secure the free state, our state of being, our state of Virginia, the federal state, these United States, and oh, by the way, the Supreme Court identified state as not necessarily any one of those that I mentioned, but to identify it as a polity. And if you look up the definitions of a polity, they can include anything such as a corporation, a community, a county, a municipality. So the argument is already in place. The words needed to defend this right are already existing, but nobody's picked them up. Nobody's taken up this argument until now. So we know that several states have assault weapons bans, and the courts have found that it's okay. They're allowed to keep them. But that's because the argument was based on the individual rights ownership argument and not on the argument of service in the militia. And that's why what we're doing is an important pathway to preserving the rights that you have. And oh, by the way, you are supposed to be well-regulated. The founders demanded it. It's your responsibility to your county, to your community. All activities involving training with, practicing with, or being instructed in the use of any firearm or technique capable of causing injury or death to persons shall only be undertaken by the FCM and its members solely for the purposes of lawful self-defense or to teach the safe handling and use of firearms or to teach or practice the individual recreational use or possession of firearms. Any training provided regarding explosives or incendiary devices will be solely to aid in the identification and reporting of such devices to lawful authorities and for the purpose of safeguarding life and limb in public, private, public and private property. No member of the FCM may falsely assume or exercise the functions, powers, duties, and privileges incident to the office of sheriff, police officer, marshal, or other police officer, or any local, city, county, state, or federal law enforcement officer. No member of the FCM may wear a military uniform, insignia, medals, or imitations thereof, respectively, with the intent to deceive another person with regard to having served in a branch of the military or having earned such insignia or medal. The wear of any military uniform, insignia, medals, or imitations thereof, respectively, by a member of the FCM shall be only for educational purposes, uniformity and camouflage during field training, or for use when called to service by lawful authority, or during charitable or community outreach activities. 
basically, I just explained to you how we wove our way through all of the laws and statutes which were written intentionally to make it difficult to serve in a constitutional militia. We've successfully navigated those pitfalls. So what we are doing is lawful activity. Here's some quotes about the militia and the bearing of arms from the founding fathers. This goes to the text in history. Thomas Jefferson said, on every occasion of construction of the Constitution, let us carry ourselves back to the time when the Constitution was adopted. Recollect the spirit manifested in the debates, and instead of trying what meaning may be squeezed out of the text or invented against it, conform to the probable one in which it was passed. In other words, we need to look at the text, history, and tradition. We can't make stuff up out of whole cloth like certain judges do today, certain politicians do today. No free man shall ever be debarred the use of arms. The strongest reason for the people to retain the right to keep and bear arms is, as a last resort, to protect themselves against tyranny in government. Well, that would never happen today, not in today's modern world. Wait a minute, I seem to recall the president stating something like, uh, you guys don't think you can beat the federal government, we have F-15s. Your, your, your AR-15 isn't going to defeat. We have the largest standing army. The fact that he has the braggadocio to, say, to make that statement is proof that the right of constitutional militia and the militias of the several states is an abandoned right because the founders wrote that provision to affirm our right to defend ourselves against such tyranny. Uh, Eric Swalwell... He said, well, we have nuclear weapons. So he's advocating the use of nuclear weapons against United States citizens because they want to keep a personal firearm to protect themselves, their family, and their community? How twisted and demented is that? Another thing Thomas Jefferson said is, I have a right to nothing which another has a right to take away not a right. Someone can take it away. Rightful liberty is unobstructed action according to our will within limits drawn around us by the equal rights of others. I do not add within the limits of the law because law is often but the tyrant's will and always so when it violates the rights of the individual. So the founders predicted this problem because they had seen it before and they did everything they could to make sure we had the tools to prevent it from reoccurring. George Mason wrote, I ask, who are the militia? They consist now of the whole people, except for a few public officers. He said, 40 years ago when the resolution of enslaving America was formed in Great Britain, the British Parliament was advised to disarm the people, that it was the best and most effectual way to enslave them, but that they should not do it openly, but weaken them and let them sink gradually by totally disusing and neglecting the militia. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly the situation that evolved in this country. I consider 
I consider and fear the natural propensity of rulers to oppress the people. I wish only to prevent them from doing evil. John, uh, James Monroe said, but it ought always to be held prominently in view that the safety of these states and of everything dear to a free people must depend in an eminent degree on the militia. He said that in his first inaugural address. James Madison, the head Federalist himself, the guy who was against having the militias of the several states, he said, it, it, when this conflict arose between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, he had to write papers called the Federalist Papers. I'm sure a lot of you read them in school, or have heard about them at least. Did you ever read the Anti-Federalist Papers? Did any teacher ever bring them forward and say, hey, these are opinions of some of the other Founding Fathers? And this is why this great conflict that happened then exists now. The same fight that they were fighting then about a strong central authority, a government, a government where, that grants rights, right, on one side, versus a, a government that is supposed to exist to protect our individual rights. And, it, and the power remains with the people. And they exert that power through the militias of the several states if the government infringes on their rights. James Madison said, beside the advantage of being armed, which the Americans possess over the people of almost every other nation, where the governments are afraid to trust the people with arms. He wrote that in Federalist Paper 46, and he was using that to justify the reasons why the Constitution should be adopted. He was, he was saying, well, the Americans possess the ability, of, of the advantage of being armed, and nobody else has that. So we already had a revolution. You guys could just do it again. If it doesn't work out, just do it again. You're keeping your arms. We're allowing you to keep your arms. Feel good about that. Uh, and, and that was his argument. Uh, they, proposed Bill of Rights, relate, to first, relate first to private rights. The great object in view is to limit and qualify the powers of government. So he was making the argument to the anti-federalists, well, Government should be limited. To these federal troops attempting to impose tyranny uh, would stand opposed a militia amounting to nearly half a million citizens with arms in their hands. So he was saying, well, if the federal government raised a standing army, the militias of the several states would have a larger army and they would be better equipped and better armed. So even the Federalists understood that the intent of the Second Amendment was for the people to maintain ownership of arms suitable for military militia service. Not, well, you can have a revolver, you can have a bolt-action rifle because that's for your personal defense. The argument that took place between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists revolved around this issue of the militia and the ultimate right of the people to throw off that yoke of tyranny. <clears throat> the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. A well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people and trained to arms is the best and most natural defense of a free country. James Madison wrote that. Richard Henry Lee said, a militia when properly formed are in fact the people themselves and include all men capable of bearing arms. To preserve liberty, it is essential that the whole body of the people always possess arms and be taught alike, especially when young, how to use them. 
Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, another anti-federalist. What, sir, is the use of the militia? Is it to prevent the establishment of a standing army, the bane of liberty? Whenever governments mean to invade the rights and liberties of the people, they always attempt to destroy the militia in order to raise an army upon their ruins. <clears throat> Joseph Story, who's that Supreme Court justice? Uh, the militia is the natural defense of a free country against sudden foreign invasions, domestic insurrections, and domestic usurpation of power by rulers. The right of the citizen to keep and bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of the republic, since it offers a strong moral check against the usurpation and arbitrary power of rulers and will generally enable the people to resist and triumph over them. I'm going to go on. So this argument of, well, there's no text history of tradition. There, you don't have a right to militia service. All of these quotes clearly indicate the founders understood. Militia service was an unalienable right. It was granted to us, we the people, by the Creator. James Byrd wrote, The possession of arms is the ultimate means by which freedom was to be preserved. Patrick Henry, in his Liberty of Death speech, wrote, The great object is that every man be armed. Everyone who is able may have a gun. Guard with jealous attention the public liberty. Suspect everyone who approaches that jewel. Unfortunately, nothing will preserve it but downright force. Whenever... You give up that force, you are invariably ruined. My great objection to this government is that it does not leave us with a means of defending our rights or of waging wars against tyrants. Oh, sir, we should have fine times indeed if to punish tyrants it were only sufficient to assemble the people. Your arms, wherewith you could defend yourselves, are gone. That's what he was writing about the proposed Constitution. So because of all these words, and because of all these demands by the anti-federalists, something called the Massachusetts Compromise was initiated. And, and then what that did was at the Compromise they said, well, at the very first Congress, we're going to propose a Bill of Rights, and we're going to list all of these enumerated rights that individuals have that the government should not infringe. And uh, Patrick Henry went on to say, Are we at last brought to such humili humiliating and debasing de degradation that we cannot be trusted with arms for our defense? Where is the difference between having our arms in possession and under our direction and having them under the management of Congress in our defense, if our defense be the real object of them under the management of Congress, if our defense be the real object of having those arms, in whose hands can they be trusted with more proprietary, propriety or equal safety to us as in our own hands? He was arguing our right exists. We should be the ones who maintain arms suitable for service in the militia. Noah Webster wrote, before a standing army can rule, the people must be disarmed, and they are in almost every kingdom in Europe. The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword because the whole body of the people are armed. He also wrote, a people can never be deprived of their liberties while they retain in their own hands a power, a power sufficient to any other power in the state. That's pretty clear. Arms 
suitable for service in the militia. Alexander Hamilton, the compatriot of James Madison, the other hero of federalism, he wrote in an admission in Federalist Papers 29, little more can reasonably aimed with, be aimed at with respect to the people at large than to have them properly armed and equipped. It was an admission that yes, uh, the individual rights and liberties need to be recognized. The people need to maintain ownership of those arms. If the representatives, he went on to say, if the representatives of the people betray their constituents, then there is no recourse left but in the exertion of that original right of self-defense, which is paramount to all positive forms of government, and which against the usurpations of the national rulers may be exerted with infinitely better prospect of success than against those of the rulers of the individual state. Pinchcox wrote, who, well, he said in his speech, who are the militia? Are they not ourselves? Congress has no power to disarm the militia. Their swords and every other terrible implement of the soldier are the birthright of an American. The unlimited power of the sword is not in the hands of either the federal or the state governments, but where I trust in God, it will ever remain in the hands of the people. As civil rulers not having their duty to the people duly before them may attempt to tyrannize and as the military forces which must occasionally raise to defend our country might pervert their power to the injury of fellow citizens the people are confirmed by the next article in their right to keep and bear arms the militia who are in fact the effective part of the people at large will form a powerful check upon the regular troops Representative Williamson, the burden of the militia duty lies equally on everybody, on all persons. Fisher Ames, the rights of conscience, of bearing arms, of changing the government are declared to be inherent in the people. Thomas Jefferson, for a people who are free and who mean to remain so, a well-organized and armed militia is their best security. And finally, Thomas Jefferson wrote, I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. And what, what does that mean? That means he understood that by the possession of arms, it potentially creates situations where we don't have safe zones, where we may be imperiled by evil, by the ill deeds of others. But God gave us the power, the right to defend ourselves. And by exercising that right, we can protect ourselves and our community, our families, from that evil. Some argue that since militias are owned or under the command of the states, that the states are free to disarm the militia if they so choose. I think based on all the quotes from the founders, you understand that to be incorrect. Therefore, of course, no individual has a right to keep and bear arms. The militia is not owned, rather it is controlled, organized, etc. by the governments. The federal government, as well as the states, have no legitimate power to disarm the people from which militias are organized. The Random House Dictionary from, uh, gives four definitions for the word regulate, which were all in use during the colonial period. And one more definition dating from 1690, which would have been applicable during the drafting of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights.
The definitions are well-regulated to control or direct by a rule, principle, or method. That's the modern definition. To adjust to some standard or requirement as for amount or degree. To adjust so as to ensure accuracy of operation. To put in good order. And finally, of troops properly disciplined. That was the definition that the founders were aware of. We can be begin to deduce that well-regulated meant for Alexander Hamilton in Federal's paper uh, number 29. The prospect of disciplining all militia of the United States is as futile as it would be in injurious if it were capable of being carried into execution. A tolerable expertness in military movements is a business that requires time and practice. It is not a day, nor a week, nor a month that will suffice for the attainment of it. To oblige the great body of yeomanry and other classes of the citizens to be under arms for the purpose of going through military exercises and evolutions as often as might be necessary to acquire the degree of perfection which would entitle them to the character of a well-regulated militia would be a real grievance to the people and a serious public inconvenience and loss. Hamilton indicates a well-regulated militia is a state of preparedness obtained after rigorous and persistent training. But he also hinted at a greater plan, something that the Federalists had up their sleeve, a trick. And that trick resulted in this conflict that we're still fighting to this day. Yale law professor Akhil Amar claims some individual rights were protected for collective purposes, the Second Amendment being one of them. However, this doesn't transform the individual right into a collective right belonging to the states or the militia. Keeping arms was a right that could be exercised individually or collectively. Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe wrote, the Second Amendment's central purpose is to arm we the people so that ordinary citizens participate in the collective defense of their community and their state. But it does so not through directly protecting a right on the part of the states or other collectives assertable by them against the federal government to arm the populace as they see fit. Rather, the amendment achieves its central purpose, central purpose by assuring that the federal government may not arm individual citizens without some, may not disarm individual citizens without some unusually strong justification consistent with the authority of the states to organize their own militia. Samuel Mitchell served in the New York State Assembly, the House of Representatives in the Senate, uh, he stated this, the establishment of a militia in which the most able-bodied and middle-aged men are enrolled and furnished with arms proceeds upon the principle that they, who are able to govern, are also capable of defending themselves. The keeping of arms is therefore not only not prohibitive, prohibited, but is positively provided by law, and these, when procured, shall not rust for want of employ, but shall be brought into use for, from time to time, that the owner may grow expert in handling them. The meeting together of the youth now, and then to exercise them in arms, and to discipline themselves for reviews at regimental and brigade parades, is intended to infuse a martial spirit and qualify them for defensive operations. 
Americans of the revolutionary generation distinguish between the individual right to keep and bear arms and the need for a militia, which is to bear them. Yet it is equally clear that more often than not, they consider these rights inseparable. Shalope then refers to James Madison's Federalist 46, where Madison drew the usual contrast between the American states where citizens were armed and European nations where governments feared to trust their citizens. Then he observed that it is not certain that with this aid alone, the possession of arms, they would be able to shake off their yokes. But were the people to possess the additional advantage of local governments chosen by themselves, who could collect the national will and direct the national force and of officers appointed out of the militia by these governments and attached both to them and to the militia, it may be affirmed with the greatest assurance that the throne of every tyranny in Europe would be speedily overturned in spite of the legions which surround them. Is there any doubt that the founders understood the precise meaning of the Second Amendment? Is there any doubt that the Second Amendment includes the right of voluntary service in constitutional militia? During the debates of the ratifying convention in Virginia over Article 1, Section 8, uh, George Mason wrote this, uh, no man has a greater regard for the military gentlemen than I have. I admire their intrepidity, perseverance, and valor. But when once a standing army is established in any country, the people lose their liberty. When against a regular disciplined army, yeomanry are the only defense, yeomanry, unskilled and unarmed, what chance is there for preserving freedom? Give me leave to recur to the page of history to warn you of the present danger. Recollect the history of most nations of the world. What havoc, desolation, and destruction have been perpetuated by standing armies. An instance within the memory of some of this house will show us how our militia may be destroyed. Forty years ago, when the resolution of enslaving America was formed in Great Britain, the British Parliament was advised by an artful man who was governor of Pennsylvania to disarm the people that it was the best and most effectual way to enslave them, but that they should do it not openly, but to weaken them and let them sink gradually by totally disusing and neglecting the militia. Why should we not provide against the danger of having our militia, our real and natural strength destroyed? The general government ought at the same time to have some such power, but we need not give them the power to abolish our militia. If they neglect to arm them and prescribe proper discipline, they will be of no use. I am not acquainted with the military profession. I beg to be excused of any errors I may commit with respect to it. But I stand on the general principles of freedom, whereupon I dare to meet anyone. I wish that in the case of general government should neglect to arm and discipline the militia, there should be an express declaration that the state governments might arm and discipline them. They may affect the destruction of the militia by rendering service odious to the people themselves, by harassing them from one end of the continent to the other, and by keeping them under martial law. So what started to evolve was, an, is, was, an, was a view by the Federalists that, well, we're going to give in to the Anti-Federalists. We're going to cave to, to, to what they're asking. But what we're going to do is the citizenry is going to be lazy. 
and eventually they're going to stop training. They're going to stop practicing. And when that happens, the central government will have the ability to raise a select militia. And the select militia will answer directly to the federal government. It will be trained by the federal government. Its officer cadre will be selected by the federal government. Uh, it will follow government regulations. And in doing so, we will strip the states of their rights. And, and that was what Alexander Hamilton believed. Uh, and, and Joseph Story, Justice Story in the mid 1800s, warned us that he was observing that it was happening. Along came the Civil War. More Americans died in that conflict than all of the conflicts combined. And at the conclusion of the war, the people were tired. They didn't want to take up arms anymore. They were tired. And, and so it was a good opportunity for these encroachments of federalism to begin to erode the right of militia service. And by 1903, something called the Dick Act was passed. And that federalized the National Guard. It created a standard where prior to the Dick Act, all of us were part of the militia. And after the Dick Act, the militia was divided into categories. One of those categories is the National Guard. That's the select militia. And the other category is the unorganized militia. And even though the government knows that it's responsible, it has a duty to regulate all of the militia, it chose instead to let the, un uh, the unorganized militia languish without regulation. They assigned responsibilities to, of regulation through Congress, through the Dick Act, through the 1916 National Defense Act, and to the subsequent 1933 National Defense Act. They gave that authority to states, and they said to the states, hey, you regulate your militia, your unorganized militia. And the state legislature gave that authority to the governor, and the governor gave that authority to the adjutant general. And you know exactly how many regulations, what our training standards are, what has been written, what has been released for us in order for us to practice that right? Nothing. Nothing. Yet we have a right, and indeed a duty, to be well regulated so that we may keep and bear arms because it is necessary to the security of a free state, and the founders understood why. It's without question. I could keep going with quotes from the founders. They understood why. Why does the government today not understand that? Because it is a government that seeks to expand the powers of federalism to deny republicanism, to deny the rights of citizens guaranteed under the Constitution of a, uh, in a constitutional republic. Maybe take a little break. Maybe you drink of water. <laughs> Excuse me. While in the Federalist 46, Madison argued that a standing army of 25 to 30,000 men would be offset by a militia amounting to nearly half a million citizens with arms in their hands, officered by men chosen from amongst themselves, the anti-Federalists were not persuaded by these arguments. 
in part because of the degree of control over the militia given to the national government by the proposed constitution. The fears of the more conservative opponents centered upon the possible phasing out of the general militia in favor of a smaller, more readily corrupted select militia. Proposals for such a select militia had already been advanced by individuals such as Baron von Steuben, Washington's Inspector General, who proposed supplementing the general militia with a force of 21,000 men given government-issued arms and special training. An article in the Connecticut Journal expressed the fear that the proposed Constitution might allow Congress to create such militias. This looks too much like Baron Steuben's militia, by which his standing army was meant and intended. In Pennsylvania, John Smiley told the ratifying convention that Congress may give us a select militia, which will in fact be a standing army, and worried that with this force in hand, the people in general may be disarmed. Similar concerns were raised by Richard Henry Lee in Virginia in his widely read pamphlet, Letters from the Federal Farmer to the Republican. Lee warned that liberties might be undermined by the creation of a select militia that would answer to all the purposes of an army and concluded that the Constitution ought to secure a genuine and guard against a select militia by providing that the militia shall always be kept well organized, armed and disciplined and include according to the past and general usage of the states all men capable of bearing arms. In Federalist Paper 29, Hamilton argued the inability to train the whole militia made select corps and a select militia inevitable. And, like Madison, shrugged it off and said, it's just a matter of time before it happens. And that's exactly what has happened to our right of militia service in this country. People say, well, the anti-federalists, it was just a small bunch of kooks. It wasn't really a big movement. It wasn't a lot of people. The Federalists, people really supported federalism. And the Anti-Federalists, well, they're against the Constitution. They weren't against the Constitution. They were pro-individual rights. They wanted to preserve the individual rights and the individual liberties granted to them by the Creator. And they wanted assurances in that Constitution that guaranteed those rights, that guaranteed that the federal government would not infringe on those rights. Some of the anti-federalists, Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, Miss Mercy Otis Warren of Massachusetts, George Clinton of New York, he became the fourth vice president, Patrick Henry of Virginia, the first governor of Virginia, Sam Adams, Joshua Atherton, George Mason, Richard Henry Lee, Robert Yates, James Monroe became the fifth president, Amos Singletary, Samuel Bryan, Malacton Smith, James Winthrop, Luther Martin. They feared a strong central federal government would eventually repress individual liberties and natural rights in order to coalesce and usurp powers not granted it under the proposed constitution and diminish the authority of the several states. More of them were from rural areas of the colonies. More of them were from the western side of the colonies. More were from larger states rather than small states. They insisted upon a Bill of Rights, and they forced the Massachusetts Compromise. <clears throat> In the case Miller, the Supreme Court case directly addressing the Second Amendment, the government made two arguments 
for the National Firearm Act's constitutionality under the Second Amendment. First, it argued that the amendment gave sanction only to the arming of the people as a body to defend their rights against tyrannical and unprincipled rulers, and did not permit the keeping of arms for the purpose of private defense. Thus, the right was only one which exists where the arms are born in the militia or some other military organization provided for by law and intended for the protection of the state. Isn't that interesting? Their argument was arms are for the militia when they were arguing in support of the NFA. Second Amendment... Uh, Second, the government argued that the term arms refers only to those weapons which are ordinarily used for military or public defense purposes. Isn't that interesting? Because in the Seventh Circuit Court, a couple of weeks ago, Judge Wood made a determination that was completely opposite. The court, citing rat ratification debates, legislative history, and approved commentators, defined the term militia as civilians primarily and soldiers on the occasion. The militia compromised all males physically capable of acting in concert for the common defense, and further, that ordinarily, when called for service, these men were expected to appear, they were expected to appear, bearing arms suitable for service in the militia, supplied by themselves and of the kind in common use at the time. So here's, here's our laws in the Code of Virginia. I'm, I'm getting down in the stack. I'm getting there. The militia of the Commonwealth of Virginia shall consist of all able-bodied residents of the Commonwealth who are citizens of the United States and all other able-bodied persons resident in the Commonwealth who have declared their intention to become citizens of the United States for at least 16 years of age, except as herein provided, not more than 55 years of age. The militia shall be divided into three classes, the National Guard, which includes the Army National Guard, the Air National Guard, the Defense Force, and the unorganized militia. Subject to the direction and orders of the governor, the adjutant general shall provide for the training and administration of the National Guard and the Virginia Defense Force, and shall require the members of the National Guard and the Virginia Defense Force to attend such training when scheduled. No statute that requires them to provide our well-regulating regulations. How are we to be well-regulated when the government has a responsibility, a duty to tell us that? It's in the Constitution. It's, it, we have a duty under the Second Amendment, and yet there's no statute that says there, that, that they shall do it. The National Guard, the Virginia Defense Force, and the unorganized militia, or any part thereof, may be ordered into service by the governor in any order he determines. The National Guard, the Virginia Defense Force, or the unorganized militia, when called into service by the governor, shall serve for such time as the governor's judgment may be necessary. Whenever any part of the unorganized militia is ordered out, it shall not be governed by the same rules as, and regulations and be subject it shall be governed by the same rules and regulations and be subject to the same penalties as the National Guard. And he may likewise order out such a part of the unorganized militia as he may deem necessary. The governor shall, when ordering out the unorganized militia, designate the number to be called. He may order them out by calling for volunteers 
or by draft. And the unorganized militia shall be incorporated into the Virginia Defense Force if it's activated. Whenever the governor orders out the unorganized militia or any part thereof, it shall be incorporated into the Virginia Defense Force until relieved from service. Punishment for failure to appear. Every member of the militia ordered out for duty who shall volunteer or be drafted, who does not appear at the time and place ordered, shall be liable to a punishment as a court-martial may direct. So the government has the authority to order you to report for militia service. But they have not directed you, they have not given you the regulations that are supposed to keep you well-trained, well-disciplined, and prepared for that service. What about your right of self-defense? Every member of the militia ordered out for duty or who shall volunteer to be drafted, who does not appear at the time and place order, shall be liable to punishment such as a court-martial. Here's some other statutes that the opponents of what we're doing never talk about, and they're important. When any number of persons, whether armed or not, are unlawfully or riotously assembled, the sheriff of the county and his deputies, the police officials of the county, city, or town, and any assigned militia, or any of them, shall go among the persons assembled, or as near to them as safety will permit, and command them in the name of the commonwealth immediately to disperse. If upon such command the persons unlawfully assembled do not disperse immediately, such sheriff, officer, or militia may use such force as is reasonably necessary to disperse them and to arrest those who fail to or refuse to disperse. To accomplish this end, the sheriff or other law enforcement officer may request and use the assistance and services of private citizens. Every endeavor shall be used both by the sheriff or other officers and by the officer commanding any other force which can be made consistently with the preservation of life to induce or force those unlawfully assembled to disperse before an attack is made upon those unlawfully assembled by which their lives may be endangered. That's State Statute 18.2-411. So the sheriff of a county has the authority to call upon private citizens or any portion of the unorganized militia in order to quell riotously, unlawfully or riotously assembled persons. So when people say only the governor can call out the militia, that's incorrect. There is a state statute that gives that authority to a county sheriff. If you refuse when the county sheriff calls upon you, State Statute 18.2-463, if any person on being required by any sheriff or other officer refuses or neglects to assist him in the execution of his office in a criminal case for the preservation of peace, the apprehending or securing of any person for breach of the peace, in any case of escape or rescue, he shall be guilty of a Class II misdemeanor. So again, we have a responsibility to respond to the hue and cry, to the call, of a constitutional officer, county sheriff. We should have regulations. We should be prepared, well-disciplined, but we're not. We've been neglected. Our right has been abandoned. And because of it, how can we exercise these demands of us?
The governor or his designee may call forth the militia or any part thereof or state active duty for service in any of the following circumstances. I'm going to skip ahead. In the event of flood, hurricane, fire, or other forms of natural or man-made disaster, wherein human life, public property, or the environment is in peril. In emergencies of lesser magnitude than those described in the preceding paragraph, including but not limited to the disruption of vital public services, wherein the use of militia personnel or equipment would be of assistance to one or more departments, agencies, institutions, or political subdivisions of the Commonwealth. When the governor or his designee, in consultation with the adjutant general, determines that the militia or any part thereof is in need of specific training to be prepared for being called forth for any of the circumstances expressed in subdivisions one through six, I didn't read all of them, I just read a couple of them, such training may be conducted with a state or federal agencies or agencies having the capability or responding to coordinating or assist with any of the circumstances set forth in subdivisions one through six above. Where are our regulations? Where is our training? How can we exercise our Second Amendment rights completely? State Statute 44-78.1, in the event of the circumstances described in Subdivision A, 2, 4, 5 of State Statute 44-75.1, arise within a county, city, or town of the Commonwealth, either the governing body or the chief law enforcement officer of the county, city, or town, may call upon the governor for assistance from the militia. The governor may call forth the militia or any part thereof. He can do so by asking for volunteers. Finally, there's an argument about paramilitary activity. Well, you guys are paramilitary. No, we are clearly constitutionally defined, statutorily defined members of the unorganized militia. A person is guilty of unlawful paramilitary activity, punishable by a class 5 felony, if he teaches or demonstrates to any other person the use, application, or making of any firearm, explosive, or incendiary device, or technique capable of causing injury, death, to persons knowing, having reason to know, or intending that such training will be employed for use or in furtherance of a civil disorder. Assembles with one or more persons for the purpose of training with, practicing with, or being instructed in the use of firearms, explosive, or incendiary device, or technique capable of causing injury or death to persons intending to employ such training for use in or in furtherance of a civil disorder. Violate subsection A of 18.2-282 while assembled with one or more persons for the purpose of and with the intent to intimidate any person or group of persons while brandishing arms. So earlier I read to you our Articles of Incorporation, our mission statement, our, our objectives, and um, I clearly stated that under these circumstances, we are absolutely not training to intend in furtherance of a civil disorder. That is not the intent or purpose of our organization. We're simply exercising, we're merely exercising our constitutional right to volunteer, to be well-regulated, so that we may exercise the entirety of our Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms suitable for service in the militia. Lastly, last piece of paper. Uh, the sheriff has something called the pow power of the posse comitatus, the dual nature of the right and duty to keep and bear arms. The Constitution also gave the new federal government posse comitatus power. 
Historically, the Posse Comitatus is broader than the militia in membership. When the state carries out its duties of training for the militia, the militia is an organized body. The Posse Comitatus, however, is often ad hoc. The sheriff or other proper official can call out the posse when needed and compel service of the posse, but there is no legal theory or historical practice for a government official to require unwilling persons to undergo posse training like there is for militia service. A common phrase in early state constitutions was that people had the right to arms for the defense of themselves and the state. For example, in Missouri and Colorado, to keep and bear arms in defense of his home, person, and property, or in aid of the civil power, and thereto legally summoned. Creating the conditions for a well-regulated functional militia also has the obvious and escapable benefit of ensuring a strong and vigorous posse comitatus. The U.S. Constitution follows the model set down by Alfred the Great. The security of a free state requires that the entire people be armed so that they may defend themselves in the state, in the militia, in the posse comitatus, and in whatever other capacity. The government needs to be needs the aid of the armed people. The power to employ the posse comitatus was originally a power that belonged only to sheriffs. Today, they remain the most frequent users of that power. Accordingly, sheriffs should be recognized as having standing under the Second Amendment and its state analogs to challenge laws or practices that interfere with citizen service in the posse comitatus. What does that mean? When and if the state legislature decides they want to employ a firearms ban on an entire category of weapons, the sheriff has standing to make the argument that that can't be done. So it's another avenue to fight against this unwarranted uh, destruction of our natural rights. The people, at the end of the day, we have to be reminded, the people and not the government possess the sovereignty. And so that's the argument in its entirety presenting the text, history, and tradition surrounding lawful constitutional militia service. As you can see, there is an abundance of evidence which clearly proves that not only is it a right of all citizens, but that it is a right that should be currently in practice. And that any organization or any body of people that tells you you do not have that right or that it has made, it's been made unlawful is lying to you. They are not telling you the entire truth. They are selecting sections of state statutes and regurgitating those sections to you. But in the entirety of the law, we clearly maintain the right of service in the volunteer constitutional militia. Now, why do they do that? Why are they saying these things? Because they want to disarm us. Why would they want to disarm us? They claim it's for the safety and security of other citizens. Well, the founders gave us a way to de de defend the safety and security of individuals and of the state. And that is through the use of the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Thank you very much. I appreciate your attention. I know it ran long. Uh, thank you.
I wanted to say thank you to all the members, volunteers who have, who have sacrificed their time, energy, and resources to make sure that this is a right that is still in practice, that it is no longer an abandoned right. And in doing so, you are offering evidence that the militia of the people still exists, and that will give us standing in any future litigation when the state legislature or the federal legislature determines that an entire category of firearms is going to be banned. It gives us standing. It allows us to take an argument to the Supreme Court and say, because it is necessary to the security of a free state, we are well regulated and we should have access to keeping and bearing arms suitable for service in the militia. Thank you. Uh, and fought. A lot of people really can't appreciate the sacrifice and the danger of running in, running towards danger instead of away from it. That's what our military does. And um, as uh, in a way, though, you, you look at the world and you wish that we didn't need militaries, right? Wouldn't it be nice if we could all just live in peace? It just doesn't work in this earth. It just doesn't work. You need to have a military. Our founding fathers um, were not really thrilled with having a standing army. They didn't like that idea. They came from Europe. What they learned over and over, not only from what they saw with their own eyes, but from what other people had written centuries before the founding fathers were there, was how uh, militaries were used to subvert people, ultimately become overly powerful, overthrowing the government and installing a new military leadership. So the founding fathers were extremely wary of, of a military. However, they recognized that in the real world, even back then, you needed a military. You had to have one. Whether you wanted a standing army or not, you needed one. But what they saw as a counter to that was the militia. They felt that that was the balance, that yeah, you had a standing army that protected the country from attacks outside, did things like that that armies did, but you had the militia on the inside that made sure that that army never got out of control. They also put the army under civilian leadership. They didn't let generals run the army, the civilians ran it, and that again prevented the kind of mess that you would see in South America where they were constantly overthrowing one government or another because the military leader, a general, decided he wanted to be the leader of the country. The, um, as the, uh, but as the, I think it was mentioned, our military has kind of shrunk a little bit. It's uh, less of the population is involved in the military now than they were back in the other, other times we had major wars going on. But I think in a way that, that sort of brings up the importance of having, again, militias within the United States to, to do things like help the local government get things done, but have pe the, the actual people that live here being uh, in the community, being a lot of the key people in that, that have the most skin in the game. The, uh, the Second Amendment was actually a pretty straightforward uh, right that was put uh, protected by the, the Bill of Rights. Again, rights were not granted to us by government. Governments are servants. We have these rights to protect yourself, the right to free speech, the, the right to all the rights that we have laid out, 
were given to us at birth. That's, that's, that's us. We, but we decided that logically we need to have some kind of government. If we were going to have a country with various states and even within a state, you need to have somebody, for example, regulating currency. If you were going to have an army to protect the entire country, you needed a, a, a federal government to do that. Now, the, the founding fathers saw that as a weak federal government. Yeah, it was there and had certain very specific jobs to do, but it wasn't this overreaching thing that we've got now. However, the founding fathers knew that that could easily happen. They'd seen it happen over and over again. As government can attract some really wonderful people to, that, that are there to serve, it also attracts people that are there for the power, especially some of the bureaucrats that have unelected power. They just got hired into a job that lets them do things that, um, that some people uh, are not morally in a position to be doing. But uh, the Second Amendment reads a well-regulated militia. And we all know that well-regulated isn't what people think now, especially uh, the, the, the gun control crowd. They think, oh, that means government was, was there controlling. That's what government's supposed to be doing this. No, absolutely not. Back then, if you had a, a clock that kept time accurately, it was called a well-regulated clock. The government wasn't in there setting it every day for you. It just meant it was well-working. And for a militia, it meant you were well-trained, you knew what you were doing. Uh, the government expected you to provide your own arms, and they expected you to know how to do it, and to get together from time to time and practice marshalling and, and practice doing things that would be necessary in the defense of a free state. And it sort of continues on uh, that those well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. And again, the necessary part of this was for a variety of things, not only for service within the, uh, the community, but protection from a standing army should, should the government ever turn tyrannical. That was the preservation of a free state because they knew if you lost your free state, it because your own army turned against you. They'd seen it over and over and over. But here's the key. You often hear people on the other side of the fence, or the gun rights side, or the gun, the gun control side, if you will, say, well, it's, it's the collective right. The Second Amendment doesn't grant you an individual right. They always said that. But they don't like to really read the Second Amendment. It's pretty straightforward, guys. The next, after the comma, <laughs> comes the key part. It says the right of the people to keep and bear arms. It doesn't say the right of the militia. It says the right of the people. Because the people are the militia, and all the people are, are actually what it views the militia. Well, of course we are. We all have skin in the game. This is our country. This is your, uh, your county here. If something bad happens, who's going to be affected? You are. Who has more need to be able to protect your own area than you? I can't think of anybody else. It's just like with self-defense. While it's wonderful we have police, and I was a deputy sheriff in Texas for about eight years, um, at the end of the day, nobody is going to want to protect your life more than you or and your family. It's going to be you. The police officer is there to help and everything, but let's face it, at the end of the day, you are the one that's responsible for protecting yourself. And the Second Amendment grants us all that. 
He grants us three things if you watch what was said during the, when the Constitution was being written and the Bill of Rights was being debated. Part of it was defense of yourself. If you can't protect yourself, your life isn't worth anything. If anybody can come up and take it away from you, what value is your life? We view in America your life as the most important thing and your family's lives, all of that. That is the key. Anything else can be replaced, but you'll never be able to replace a lost child, a lost wife, or a lost husband. Um, so that was one. Number two, which is part of what a constitutional militia is aimed at, was protection of the state. Things happen. Katrina happened, to those of you that remember Katrina. You know, here comes a hurricane. It knocked out everything. There was no police. There, the, the National Guard wasn't able to help for a while. People were on their own. But what did they do? The communities got together and armed themselves and were able to protect themselves from rioters out in many areas of Louisiana. Because of that event, VCDL got busy that year, and we had a law passed in Virginia that they cannot take away our guns. They cannot do that during an emergency. We took that power away, which is what the excuse they had was in Louisiana at the time of that. Um, anything could happen. There could be a terrorist attack, a horrible one, a dirty bomb or something that actually knocks out a lot of uh, law enforcement and everything else. We, the people, would have to gather together and hold, it, hold things together until the government got back on its feet. And of course, lastly, and the thing that the other side really doesn't want to talk about is what we've been talking about earlier, is the fact that it gives us the power to, to, if necessary, if the government ever turned against us and took away our civil rights and tried to enslave us, it would give us the power to say no. Think about it this way, the biggest military in the world has one million people in it, okay? You know how many gun owners are in America? We have a hundred million. We've got a hundred times the biggest army in the world just in citizens walking around with the right to keep and bear arms. As far as I'm concerned, it should have been the First Amendment, not the Second, because without the right to keep and bear arms, the rest of them are gone. That's why they're desperately trying to take this away. Because what do you do when you're disarmed then and the government wants to turn tyrannical? Well, you can throw rocks at them, but they're the ones that are going to have guns. Doesn't work. It's been shown over and over again. We're the last shining light on the hill in this world, really, where, there's, where freedom is there. The rest of the world, it's hard for them anymore to fathom that people are allowed to own guns. You're allowed to carry a gun. You're allowed to protect yourself. I remember in England about 10 years ago, somebody broke into a farmer's house and he had a shotgun because they could still have some shotguns there and he shot the guy. The guy didn't die, but the police arrested the farmer for using that shotgun in self-defense. And then they provided, so the government provided some money for the, the, the burglar to sue the, the farmer. They put him in jail for defending himself. That's why they really don't understand this. Really, you can have a gun to protect yourself, you have a gun to protect your community, and you're not in the, you're not in the police, you're not blessed by the government to do it. So that's why they, they're, they're trying hard to come after the Second Amendment. BCDL was formed back in 1994, the very end, about this time in 1994, Back then in Virginia, if you wanted to get a concealed carry permit, 
you had to basically beg a judge to give it to you. You had to pay $100, and by the way, the state got to keep your $100 even if they turned you down. Imagine that. Um, and uh, it was, some judges would give the gun to, to only to men. They said, women don't need guns, I kid you not. Others did the reverse. They said, well, you're a man, what do you need a gun for? Women would need guns. Some wouldn't give them to minorities. Some would only give it like Fairfax County, you know, unless you were a friend of the judge, you didn't get a permit there. And they had over a million people. They had like 10 permits. So we formed to say, this is wrong. First of all, we shouldn't even have to ask for the right to carry a gun. And if you look carefully at the Constitution, at that Second Amendment, it doesn't say you have a right to keep and bear op openly bear gun, bear arms. It doesn't say you have a right to conceal carry. It doesn't care. It doesn't say arms or guns either. It could be it could be anything, knives, anything of that, and anything that, that could be used for for defense is covered by it. So we formed in the first year, right out of the box. We got the law changed to where Virginia was in 1995 became a shall issue state. That meant the government had to give you a permit unless the government could show that you weren't qualified because you were a felon or had some mental in, uh, in, in, incapacitation. So um, that was a big win for us in Virginia back then. Now they tried a poison pill on that. I don't know if any of you remember any of this. What they, what they did was they said, all right, let's try to kill this. Let's see if we can get them to back off because this thing had motion. It was moving through the General Assembly. So somebody put an amendment on there that said, yeah, but you can't carry a gun concealed in a restaurant that serves alcohol. And we looked at that and we said, you know what? That's okay. We're, we want... We want the rest of this. We'll worry about that later. Well, it turned out there was a loophole that you could walk through that was as big as this room, and that loophole was called open carry. The law didn't say you couldn't open carry in a restaurant that served alcohol. So that started a whole open carry movement where we told all of our members, okay, guys, well, don't worry about it. Just untuck your, just tuck your shirt in before you go in the restaurant and you're good. And it worked wonders. Nobody noticed, life went on. It took 10 years to get that repealed, and I think part of that was because people had a way around it. But the, the elections that we just had, unfortunately, didn't go very well. I don't know how many here really remember discreet, distinctly not 2019. That's when we had a similar situation, except we also had a governor who didn't like gun rights. So we had what you'd call a trifecta. The House, the Senate, and the governor, the three, all were anti-gun. That was the year that we had the massive rallies that localities that would have maybe on a busy night, a really busy night, might have 50 people show up at, at one of their general assembly meetings, or one of their, I'm sorry, one of their uh, board of supervisors meetings. Thousands were showing up, thousands and thousands. They'd never seen anything like it. Meetings were moved to school auditoriums because they, they couldn't get people close to, to fitting in. The fire marshals were just throwing their hands up in the air. There were just so many people, nobody knew what to do with them. It was a, it was a movement that, that spread across the country. We got, we got attention from all over the place, all over the world. Then the General Assembly met in 2020, and we had what had to have been the biggest gun rally in the United States history in Richmond that year. How many here made that? 
Now we have a few, and I'll tell you what, those of you that didn't, you missed something big. You really did to be part of that event. Um, that was held at the General Assembly. The papers noted one, a couple things. Number one, 100% peaceful, and all different. By the way, it was the worst uh, uh, white supremacist rally ever, because it was a mixture of America. You had everybody there. You name it, they were there, all standing together, shoulder to shoulder, maybe disagreeing on social policies, but at the end of the day saying, lives are worth protecting, the right to keep and bear arms is worth protecting for us as Americans. And when we left, the newspapers noted that the city and the areas where we were were cleaner after we left than before. Richmond blew it. They should have invited us back every year. We could have ended up cleaning up the whole city over a period of time. But um, uh, with that, we, they had a trifecta then. So we couldn't stop all the gun control. But that huge turnout, boy, I'll tell you something. That really, really changed the tenor down there. Uh, there was a bill that they, they were looking at taking away AR-15s. They were looking at banning them in high-capacity magazines. When they saw that crowd early on in the General Assembly session, right after that, they had a committee meeting, and that the bill that did that wasn't even on the agenda. They brought it in, they put it forward, and they killed it immediately. It was gone. They didn't want to go anywhere near that, having seen all of those angry people, yet peaceable people, out there saying, no, hell no, you're not taking our AR-15s or, or any of those away from us. So. Um, but we're, we're unfortunately the elections have now given a, a, a one vote majority, one vote, one silly vote majority in the House and the Senate, one vote. Those two, one votes, one in the House and one in the Senate, are going to change everything, unfortunately. So we're going to have a very uphill battle. We were hoping that this year in 2024, we could begin to, re begin to repeal all that gun control that came sliding in in 2020 and 2021. But uh, we may still be able to do some moderation. The good news is the Supreme Court had stepped up last year and passed uh, and, and ruled on the uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. That was an earth-shattering ruling. It changed everything. And the, the groups like ours across the country are now suing at the state and federal levels to get rid of laws that are unconstitutional. We have already sued and won a lawsuit against Winchester last year. Uh, they used to have a gun in their parks and it permitted events. That's gone. Uh, we're going to be doing more lawsuits since, since we, the General Assembly is going to be a hard uphill battle. Our main goal will be to make sure no gun control gets through because remember we do have a governor that hopefully has never been tested on guns hopefully would veto anything bad if we can't stop it any other way. I don't know, but we're going to do our best to make sure we don't get any more gun control. But um, we're also going to be doing more lawsuits. We've lined up two more, and, and they're going to be in this general part of the world. Um, so um, the battle is going to go on there. Unfortunately, lawsuits are expensive things, and they take time. Uh, it took us two years to get the Win city of Winchester to get rid of their park ban. Um, unfortunately, I wish they would have been stubborn and hung on to it because then we could have taken it to a higher court and maybe got everything struck down statewide. 
but instead they crumbled, got rid of the ordinances, and our case then uh, got, got mooted at that point. But we're going to continue to fight. Um, so, uh, by, and we have a table over here. I don't know if you've had a chance to visit. We got some of our members and some vets. In fact, a lot of our organization have vets in our leadership. A lot of leadership are vets as well. Uh, Al Steed there on the left side served proudly in the military and made a lot of sacrifices health-wise for what he did um, back uh, in the Vietnam, Vietnam War. So I um, want to thank uh, people over there, um, Ken and Matt, uh, and go, go see those guys. We have a rally, a raffle going on. The drawing's going to be Thursday. It's for an, a $9,000 Zestava 50 BMG rifle. This is a big rifle. Uh, it's a beauty. Um, and there's uh, five, four other uh, rifle, uh, handguns and rifles that are also going to be in that. Um, we printed up only 1,500 tickets. We haven't sold that many, so right now the odds are excellent. So if you're interested in that, I unfortunately can't participate. Nobody in, uh, in you know in leadership can do that. Uh, but uh, that would be quite a rifle. <laughs> I've towed it around to a few meetings to show it off. But anyhow, um, I, I thank all of you for coming out. Um, the um, I think the, the, the whole idea of constitutional militias and being out there to, to help and assist government in a variety of ways, as well as to be people that are trained and armed as, as a way, that's the American way to do things. And um, I hope, uh, hope you all have a very good day. I'm gonna hang around for a while if anybody has any questions. And uh, thank you very much. All right, thank, uh, thank you everyone for coming. I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Jeremiah DeBoard. I'm the Senior Vice President of FCM Incorporated. Also, I am the Company Commander. Yay, Amy. Um, I wanna thank you all. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna have a brief intermission. Um, if you all have any questions, come up to the tables, you know, if you have, and we'll have, excuse me, come up to the tables, ask any brief questions. We're gonna take a 10 minute break and then Brian is gonna do one more speech. Is this gonna be your fire speech? Oh, he don't know yet, okay. I don't know if you're gonna, uh, but uh, I encourage you all to stay for the second speech. Um, the company level tables right here, we have t-shirts to sell. If y'all wanna review any of our founding documents or our mission and objective statements, and then we have our comms headquarters platoon and then you go into the different rifle platoons if you have any questions about any of the training we do i highly encourage you all to speak to um, our volunteers uh, come up to me if you have any questions about the company organization and we're more happy to answer them all right we'll take a 10 minute break and start over uh, I also, one more thing I, I forgot to mention, um, the uh, speeches later will be put out online on social media, and I hope and encourage everyone to share them, and to, you know, if you like what you hear today, you know, tell your friends about us. So, thank you.
and Commonwealth attorneys that disagree with some of the things that I'm saying. Our argument needs to be brought before the Supreme Court because their opinion is just that, an opinion. And when they render it, they omit many of the facts that I'm going to tell you today. In fact, if we look at the history of the Supreme Court decisions, recent history, where they utilize text, history, and tradition, in order to analyze our rights, I believe you will see the conclusion of my speech that there is text, history, and tradition for lawful militia service in the Commonwealth of Virginia in addition to most of the other states. And right before I get into it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with and keep this at the top of your mind there's a couple of decisions of the Supreme Court that are important and need to be remembered. One of which is called the Staples decision. And it ruled that semi-automatic arms are ubiquitous and in common use. The Heller decision said that arms in common use for lawful purposes, and that's an important part, cannot be banned. And the Bruin decision, which talks about the text, history, and tradition, and that there are considerations that must be taken in determining the constitutionality of a law. So, what are we doing? What we're doing is we've, we've created an organization for citizens so that they can be well regulated. Because the Second Amendment of the Constitution states a well regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What that means is, in order for citizens to keep and bear arms, we know the court through Heller has already determined, Heller and McDonald, that individuals have a, have a right to bear arms for their own personal defense. But that little phrase about a well-regulated militia shows you the duality of the Second Amendment. And the founders meant to include another right. And that other right was the right of service in the militia. By including that, that phrase before the comma, they also gave us an obligation or a duty. It says a well-regulated militia. In other words, in order for us to serve in a militia, we are obligated, it is our duty that we are well-regulated because it is necessary to the security of the free state. So who determines how we are well regulated. Well, that happened in the document of the Constitution itself. And I'll be talking about that momentarily. But you needed to keep that kind of at the back of your mind. These recent decisions and what's going on currently are going to affect what we're doing is going to have an effect on these recent decisions. That's my hope. <clears throat> 
We the people do ordain and establish this constitution and alone may amend it in either the state legislatures or conventions. Blackstone taught whenever a question arises between society at large and any magistrate vested with powers originally delegated by that society, it must be decided by the voice of society itself. There is not upon the earth any other tribunal to resort to. Otherwise, the mere agents could define their own authority in defiance of their principles. And in this case, what Blackstone is referring to as agents, agents are the duly elected representatives of the people. They are our agents. We lend them our power. Our rights exist without them. Our rights pre-existed the Constitution. Our rights come from the Creator and the Constitution recognizes and affirms those rights in the Bill of Rights. That is an important distinction between a constitutional republic and a democracy. Setting the political order upside down in defiance of their principles. For we the people to govern ourselves, they themselves must interpret their own supreme law with authority and finality. If public officials interpret the law, then they rule the people. If Congress, for whatever reason, neglects, fails, or refuses to make adequate provisions for that purpose, and if the several states shirk their responsibilities in this regard, then, then are the laws to remain unexecuted and the union to suffer anarchy and possible disillusion as a result? Or are we the people embodied in the militia, not entitled to do what Congress and the state should have done, and to call themselves forth to perform the mission the Constitution requires of them. That's written by Dr. Edwin Vieira. He holds multiple degrees from Harvard University. He's a constitutional scholar, and I consider him the preeminent scholar on Second Amendment issues. He's argued several cases before the Supreme Court, and won. So when people ask, well, what's the source of this idea? Where, where does this idea come from that you're arguing? He's the primary author of this idea. And everything that follows is because of his idea that I just expressed here. Uh, he wrote a book, it's called The Sword and the Sovereignty. You can only get it online now in form of a CD. It's 2,600 pages long. It explains the entirety of the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment. So if you feel like a little light reading, that's a good source to pick up. Uh, he has some other books that he read that are that he's written that are much shorter, and, and I endorse those books as well. Um, I read that in its entirety, in addition to uh, a lot of things that I'm going to quote here today. So recently, there was a Supreme, uh, there was a United States Appellate Court decision in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, Judge Wood said, "Everyone can agree that a personal handgun used for self-defense is one of those arms that law-abiding citizens must be free to keep and bear." The state of Illinois has decided to regulate what, what they call assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. A decision that is valid only if the regulated weapons lie on the military side of the line and thus are not within the class of arms protected by the Second Amendment. That's interesting. 
Nowhere in the Second Amendment does it draw a distinction between military arms or, or small arms for citizens. And yet this judge seems to make up out of whole cloth this argument. But it's based on an older argument, which we'll get to. Using the tools of history, the tradition to which the Supreme Court directed us in Heller and Bruin, we conclude that the state and the affected subdivisions have a strong likelihood of success in the pending litigation. We therefore vacate the injunction issued by the District Court of Appeals. So this is Illinois' assault weapons ban. The Surgeon Court has said, well, certain categories of firearms are just meant for the military. Citizens aren't supposed to have them, have them. right? So um, we're not going to put a stay on this, and the case continues. In the meantime, Illinois can enact uh, its, its law. The failure of both Congress and the states properly to maintain the militia of the several states. Uh, in the mid, middle of the 1800s, uh, Justice Joseph's story uh, said this, Though the importance of a well-regulated militia would seem so undeniable, it cannot be disguised that among the American people there is a growing indifference to any system of militia discipline and a strong disposition from the sense of its burdens to be rid of all regulations. How is it practicable to keep the people duly armed without some organization? It's difficult to see. There is certainly no small danger that indifference may lead to disgust and disgust to contempt and thus gradually undermined all of the protection intended by the Second Amendment of our natural Bill of Rights. A Republican, whoops, the Constitution itself nowhere creates the militia of the several states or authorizes the states or Congress to do so. It merely recognizes the militia in the self-same way it treats the several states themselves as establishments that pre-existed its ratification, that it incorporated into the form which it found them in and for the function they performed at the time, and that it was presumed will continue in that form and for that function into the indefinite future. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. The Constitution treats the militia of the several states as perpetual in existence and permanent in authority and character. Therefore, because each of the several states must maintain her own militia, and because every state of this union must be guaranteed a republican form of government, then simply per, per force of constitutional logic, a republican form must encompass militia in every state. A republican form after all, signifies more than simply a representative government, more even than a constitutional government. Self-evidently, it prohibits every form of tyranny, as the Founding Fathers learned from John Locke. Tyranny is the exercise of power beyond right. Clauses 15 and 16 of the Constitution. This came before the Second Amendment. Clause 15, the Congress shall have power to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. Words matter. 
So let's look at the words. Congress has the power, did they say to create the militia? No, they said to call forth the militia. There is a presupposition. It is presupposed that the militia exists for Congress to be able to call it forth. Congress is admitting they do not have the power to create militia. The militia already exists. It is a recognition of that right. Congress shall have power to provide for organizing. They shall have the power for arming and disciplining the militia and for governing such a part of them as may be employed in the service of these United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of officers, the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. What does that mean? That mean that means there was a big argument between two groups of people. When you studied in school and learned about the Constitutional Conventions, I'm sure your teacher talked about the Great, the great Compromise, the, the Three-Fifths Compromise, and how that seemed to really occupy the minds of the Founding Fathers. Uh, the reality is the militia was the object of most of their discussions far more than any of the other issues that arose during the Constitutional Conventions. And this division of powers that existed between the federal government and the states had to come to some kind of compromise or conclusion. Because <clears throat> the Federalists said, well, we've tried this assemblage of states, and it didn't work out because when the president needed to call upon the militia, not every state responded. So the president has to have the authority to call forth the militia. And Congress, and when he calls them forth, they should be trained to a certain minimum standard. So he has an expectation as to how they're going to perform. And so Congress said, well, we need to make sure that we maintain the power to establish regulations. And by regulations, they meant the way that they discipline and train the troops, not putting rules on the states as to when and how the militia can be called forth. The Congress shall have the power to arm them, which meant if the state militia showed up and their arms weren't proper for military service, the federal government could offer them arms to discipline them, meaning if they showed up and they were drunken or slovenly, slovenly uh, they could impart military justice on them. And so everything else was reserved for the states. So the states had the authority to appoint the officers of the militia and to train the militia to meet the well-regulated standard established by Congress. Benjamin Doss wrote, to the founders, the militia was the great bulwark of our liberties and independence. The term militia appears in the Constitution four times in three separate clauses. A fifth time in the crucial to ratification Second Amendment, and a sixth time in the Fifth Amendment. Between the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, it features four times more than commerce, armies, navies, army or armies, navy, and religion and religious. Once more than jury, and the same number of times as tax. So you know militia was very important because they mentioned it the same amount of times as tax. It also receives extended analysis in six Federalist papers and reference in eight others. 
This was the great divide between the Founding Fathers, between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The militia functioned as a constitutional ejection seat. The Founders specifically sought to ensure the militia's loyalty to the states by giving the states training authority and the authority to commission militia officers. If the federal government became tyrannical, the militia as an institution primarily loyal to states rather than the federal government could eject the tyrant. Of course, nothing in the Constitution made the militia's use mandatory. Congress could displace the militia by authorizing a large standing army. And eventually, that's exactly what it did. When it did so, reliance on the militia ceased, and the militia clause's checking function fell dormant. But that right still exists. wasn't taken away. It wasn't made unlawful. There's no statute that made it illegal. It was simply made difficult to exercise. The militia of the founders operated quite differently than today's militia. Whereas the professional military prizes its distinctiveness, the militia of the founders lived among and trained with their communities. Although the professional military has usually represented only a tiny fraction of citizens at the founding, every voter aged 18 to 45 served in the militia. While a professional ethos permeates today's military, for the founders, militia service was like jury duty, a duty of citizenship, a chance for amateurs to counterbalance professionals, and although certainly a source of pride, not a citizen's primary identity. They also believed only the economic independence of the citizen and his ability and willingness to become a warrior were dependable protections against corruption and coercion. Accordingly, Republican theorists idealized the citizen soldier as the essential foundation of a republic. In the English context, this meant the celebration of the independent armed yeoman. In Harrington's view, a yeoman militia became the ideal vehicle for cultivating the sorts of virtue Republican self-rule required. The militiaman, armed and trained, could assert his independence and develop a love for liberty. Simultaneously, the act of collecting trained, cultivated civic identity and prepared citizens for political life. As Harrington declared, only the armed freeholder was capable of independence and virtue. Republicans understood militia service to buttress civic and political capacity. By contrast, the regular army drained it. As such, standing armies became subjects of suspicion, fit tools for empowering tyrants in contrast to the rugged militiaman who developed Republican self-reliance. The militia came to symbolize the responsibilities and rights of free men. Men who shirked military life were liable to surrender freedom for comfort. Men who served in the military too long lost connection with their community and its civilizing influences. These Republican theorists portrayed militia service as intrinsic to self-rule. Through a militia, the people could acquire the qualities required for Republican life. Without a militia, civic virtue would wither and the people almost certainly would collapse back into subjugation. The English politician James Byrd made this point explicitly in his 1775 tract, 
political disquisitions, Berg argued that the British people, having forgotten the military virtues of their ancestors, now live precariously and at discretion. In other words, the loss of militia culture rendered the Englishman ripe for subjugation. Berg's American audience took his message to heart. Those who received his first printing of that of his tract included John Adams, George Washington, Samuel Chase, John Dickinson, Silas Dean, John Hancock, Thomas Mifflin, James Wilson, and Thomas Jefferson. So the founders were quite understanding. They understood the values of republicanism and the importance of militia to citizenry. So when they sat down on July 2nd to have a vote on this document, all of that was running through their minds. And they wrote this. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the cause which impelled them to the separation. So the founders are making a statement. It is an admission of their worldview. And their worldview is that our rights emanate from God, the Creator. They, they don't come from government, because rights that come from government can be taken away. They're not truly rights. But if rights come from the Creator, it's man's responsibility to preserve those rights. And the founders knew that when they wrote this part. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely, likely to affect their safety and happiness. When a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invites a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. So the founders knew, believed that rights came from God and it was government's job to protect those rights. And when it failed to protect them or infringe on them, it was the duty of the people, it was their right to alter or abolish that government and replace it with one that did their bidding, that defended their rights. This is a very unique document because up until that time in the world, there was no other document like it. There was never a recognition anywhere else, even in the Magna Carta, even in the common rights of Englishmen, 
that gave, no, that recognized that our power, our rights are ours and that we lend it to a government. They're ours because by birth, the creator gave them to us. And that's an essential belief to a constitutional republic. On October 26, 1774, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, observing the British military buildup, deemed their militia resources to be insufficient. They recommended to the militia that they form themselves into companies of Minutemen who should be equipped and prepared to march at the shortest notice. These Minutemen were to consist of one quarter of the whole militia to be enlisted under the direction of field officers divided into companies, consisted of 50 men. The privates were to choose their captains from amongst themselves and subalterns, and these officers were to form the companies into battalions and choose the field officers to command the same. Hence, the Minutemen became a body distinct from the rest of the militia, and by being more devoted to military exercise, they acquired skill in the use of arms, more attention than formerly was likewise bestowed on the training and drilling of the militia. While that was happening, the Founding Fathers recognized the, 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 the conflict that was approaching. And so, when what they did was they formed specifically George Mason, Colonel George Mason, who lived in Fairfax County, uh, and George Washington, Colonel George Washington, they formed an independent company called the Fairfax County Independent Company of Volunteer Militia. They did that for the purpose, well, I'll go ahead and read their charter to you from the papers of George Mason. In this time of extreme danger in our country and threatened with the destruction of our civil rights and liberty and all that is dear to British subjects and freemen, we subscribers taking into our serious consideration the present alarming situation of all the British colonies upon the continent as well as our own being sensible of the expediency of putting the militia of this colony upon a more respectable footing and hoping to excite others by our example have voluntarily, freely, and cordially entered into the following association, which we each of us for ourselves respectively, solemnly promise and pledge our honors to each other and to our country to perform, that we will form ourselves into a company not exceeding 100 men by the name of the Fairfax Independent Company of Volunteers, making a choice of our own officers to whom for the sake of good order and regularity we will pay due submission that we will meet at such times and places in this county as our said officers chosen by a majority of the members as soon as 50 have su subscribed shall appoint and direct for the purpose of learning and practicing the military exercise and discipline. Dress in a regular uniform of blue turned up with buff with plain yellow metal buttons, buff waistcoat and breeches, white stockings and furniture with a good flint lock bayonet, sling cartouche box, and tomahawk, and 50 gun flints. Hey, that's high capacity. At least that we will use our utmost endeavors as well at the muster of said company as by all other means in our power to make ourselves masters of the military exercise and that we will always hold ourselves in readiness in case of necessity 
hostile invasion or real danger of the Commonwealth of which we are members to defend the utmost of our power, the legal prerogatives of our sovereign King George III and the just right and privileges of our country, our posterity and ourselves upon the principles of the British Constitution. What these men did was groundbreaking. It was earth shattering. They did not have the approval of the House of Burgesses. They did not have the approval of the Crown. They basically said, we have the right to train, to form a company, to learn the military arts and practices, to be well-regulated, well-disciplined, in preparation of a time when we may be needed. Because it's all right to be able to defend ourselves. And so utilizing the history of the Fairfax Independent Company of Volunteers, we chartered our own organization, following their example. In the Militia Acts of 1777 in Virginia, uh, they were extensive and they talked specifically about the arms and accoutrements that each individual citizen was supposed to bring with them for militia service. Arms suitable for militia service. All civilians were expected to provide their arms. The state did not provide them. That's because individuals have the right to keep and bear arms given to them by the creator, not the government. So, we wrote this resolution. A resolution to incorporate an independent company of volunteer militia. Whereas the natural right of self-defense with arms belongs both to the individual and to the people of this county collectively. And this natural right is recognized in Article 1, Section 13 of the Virginia Constitution, which describes militia as the body of the people trained to arms. It is in our own state constitution. Militia's definition is the body of the people trained to arms and declares such to be a free state's proper, natural, and safe defense. And this natural right is also recognized in the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So here's our mission statement. The mission of Franklin County Militia Incorporated is to educate, organize, and train citizens in Franklin County, Virginia in the safe, lawful, and effective use of firearms for personal defense and public safety, in the preparation for, response to, and recovery from natural and man-made disasters, and in the fundamentals and exercise of the human and civil rights and duties belonging to all members of the community. Under no circumstances will Franklin County Militia tolerate members who advocate or commit crimes or criminal violence, terrorism, or discrimination in any form against those whom we are sworn to protect. We seek to advocate for constitutionally affirmed natural rights and facilitate communities of like-minded citizens to organize in furtherance of Franklin County militia objectives for the purpose of making the local militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms, well-regulated, or in good working order, such being necessary to the security of a free state and its proper natural and safe defense. 
That's what we're all about. Here's the objectives. Franklin County Militia objectives. One, to advocate and work to achieve the ability of the Franklin County Militia to legally operate and carry out the lawful functions of individual citizens and groups of citizens to be a ready, willing, equipped, and able body of citizenry that can respond to assist the lawful authorities of our county to serve in the unorganized militia should it ever be mustered for action as established in the state United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 13 of the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Two, to prepare any eligible citizen, our members, our families, and our communities to survive any natural or man-made disaster, any war or conflict, and defend ourselves and our property against any aggression, assault, unlawful seizure, or theft by any entity. Training will not be limited to, but may include U.S. Army basic and advanced infantry skills, marksmanship, firearm safety, first aid, radio communications, orienteering, search and rescue, long-term food storage, water treatment, food production, animal husbandry, homesteading skills, and physical fitness to organize our communities and our members into groups of like-minded citizens for their benefit. Three, to work to improve our relations with the community at large and the local elected public servants, to seek out opportunities to serve our communities, to always advance the cause of liberty and the Founders' principles as stated in the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, to preserve and defend the natural rights granted to us by the Creator. Four, to work to improve relations and create a framework of cooperation with other constitutional county militias in the Commonwealth of Virginia to be able to respond to lawful requests for mutual aid. Five, to work with other groups of like-minded citizens to achieve any of the above objectives. A militia infantry company should develop the necessary skills to accomplish these objectives. Training for these skills is an important part of volunteer service in an unorganized militia company in order to fulfill the constitutional mandate to be well-trained and well-regulated militia. Constitutional guarantees regarding the militia and the right to keep and bear arms. That a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper natural and safe defense of a free state. Therefore. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That standing armies in a time of peace should be avoided as dangerous to liberty. And that in all cases the military should be under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. Article 1, Section 13 of the Virginia Constitution. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's the Second Amendment of the Constitution. Franklin County Militia Incorporated is an independent company of volunteer militia organized as a Virginia non-stock corporation for charitable purposes. We are not calling ourselves a militia. We are statutorily, statutorily defined subcategory of militia. United States Code and Virginia State Statutes define the members of a militia. I'll be getting to that shortly. We're not calling ourselves a militia. We are all a part of the militia. 
That was a right affirmed in the Constitution. The FCM has organized itself using the command and organizational structure that generally corresponds to that of a light infantry rifle company in the United States Army, with the addition of staff functions normally found at the battalion and brigade levels along with support and enabler components. The FCM recognizes the natural and constitutional rights of all citizens of the United States, regardless of their race, religion, creed, nationality, gender, or national origin. No member of the FCM may engage in any activity or conduct with the intent to impair or infringe upon the natural and constitutional rights of any other citizen. The FCM, as an incorporated subset of the militia, exists for all lawful charitable purposes under the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of Virginia. As a subset of constitutional militia, the FCM is subject to the lawful orders of the lawful authorities in the Commonwealth of Virginia and of the United States when called into federal service by the president, governor, or sheriff. Neither the FCM nor its members may undertake any activity with knowledge of or intent to cause a further or further a civil disorder. No member of the FCM may assemble with one or more persons for the purposes of training, with practicing with, or being instructed in the use of any firearm, explosive or incendiary device, or technique capable of causing injury or death to persons, intending to employ such training for use in or in furtherance of a civil disorder. Well, wait a minute. Those are all the things that we train. I mean, that's the point of being a well-regulated militia. But we're not doing it in furtherance of, for the purpose of, with the intent of creating a civil disorder. It's not our intent. We're exercising our constitutional right to be well-regulated, that is, well-trained. And in doing so, it ensures our right to maintain ownership of firearms suitable for militia service. What are those firearms? Those firearms are semi-automatic firearms that are currently being advocated to be banned. Standard capacity magazines. AR-15s, AK pattern rifles, anything that's semi-automatic that has a detachable magazine. There are, there are organizations, people in this country that want to take them away. Our argument is based on arms suitable for militia service, the arms that were left after the 1934 National Firearms Act, after the 1968 Gun Control Act, after the Hughes Amendment, after FOPA, Whatever's left to us is semi-automatic firearms. And, and our claim is they are the most suitable firearms for service in the militia. So if we are, we have an obligation to be well-regulated. If we are well-regulated, that means we have to have the arms suitable for service in the militia. So this is a different argument than any other argument that has been presented thus far. All of the arguments have stated an individual right to ownership of certain categories of firearms. But as I told, said to you earlier, I read the decision of the Seventh Circuit Court where they said, well, no, 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 certain firearms are only sort of suitable for military use. Okay, the founders knew that. They foresaw that. And that's why the part before the comma exists. 
a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state. So in order to secure the free state, our state of being, our state of Virginia, the federal state, these United States, and oh, by the way, the Supreme Court identified state as not necessarily any one of those that I mentioned, but to identify it as a polity. And if you look up the definitions of a polity, they can include anything such as a corporation, a community, a county, a municipality. So the argument is already in place. The words needed to defend this right are already existing, but nobody's picked them up. Nobody's taken up this argument until now. So we know that several states have assault weapons bans, and the courts have found that it's okay. They're allowed to keep them. But that's because the argument was based on the individual rights ownership argument and not on the argument of service in the militia. And that's why what we're doing is an important pathway to preserving the rights that you have. And oh, by the way, you are supposed to be well-regulated. The founders demanded it. It's your responsibility to your county, to your community. All activities involving training with, practicing with, or being instructed in the use of any firearm or technique capable of causing injury or death to persons shall only be undertaken by the FCM and its members solely for the purposes of lawful self-defense or to teach the safe handling and use of firearms or to teach or practice the individual recreational use or possession of firearms. Any training provided regarding explosives or incendiary devices will be solely to aid in the identification and reporting of such devices to lawful authorities and for the purpose of safeguarding life and limb in public, private, public and private property. No member of the FCM may falsely assume or exercise the functions, powers, duties, and privileges incident to the office of sheriff, police officer, marshal, or other police officer, or any local, city, county, state, or federal law enforcement officer. No member of the FCM may wear a military uniform, insignia, medals, or imitations thereof, respectively, with the intent to deceive another person with regard to having served in a branch of the military or having earned such insignia or medal. The wear of any military uniform, insignia, medals, or imitations thereof, respectively, by a member of the FCM shall be only for educational purposes, uniformity and camouflage during field training, or for use when called to service by lawful authority, or during charitable or community outreach activities. Basically, I just explained to you how we wove our way through all of the laws and statutes which were written intentionally to make it difficult to serve in a constitutional militia. We've successfully navigated those pitfalls. So what we are doing is lawful activity. Here's some quotes about the militia and the bearing of arms from the Founding Fathers. This goes to the text in history. 
Thomas Jefferson said, on every occasion of construction of the Constitution, let us carry ourselves back to the time when the Constitution was adopted. Recollect the spirit manifested in the debates, and instead of trying what meaning may be squeezed out of the text or invented against it, conform to the probable one in which it was passed. In other words, we need to look at the text, history, and tradition. We can't make stuff up out of whole cloth like certain judges do today, certain politicians do today. No free man shall ever be debarred the use of arms. The strongest reason for the people to retain the right to keep and bear arms is, as a last resort, to protect themselves against tyranny in government. Well, that would never happen today, not in today's modern world. Wait a minute, I seem to recall the president stating something like, uh, you guys don't think you can beat the federal government, we have F-15s. Your, your, your AR-15 isn't going to defeat. We have the largest standing army. The fact that he has the braggadocio to, say, to make that statement is proof that the right of constitutional militia and the militias of the several states is an abandoned right because the founders wrote that provision to affirm our right to defend ourselves against such tyranny. Uh, Eric Swalwell... He said, well, we have nuclear weapons. So he's advocating the use of nuclear weapons against United States citizens because they want to keep a personal firearm to protect themselves, their family, and their community? How twisted and demented is that? Another thing Thomas Jefferson said is, I have a right to nothing which another has a right to take away not a right. Someone can take it away. Rightful liberty is unobstructed action according to our will within limits drawn around us by the equal rights of others. I do not add within the limits of the law because law is often but the tyrant's will and always so when it violates the rights of the individual. So the founders predicted this problem because they had seen it before and they did everything they could to make sure we had the tools to prevent it from reoccurring. George Mason wrote, I ask, who are the militia? They consist now of the whole people, except for a few public officers. He said, 40 years ago when the resolution of enslaving America was formed in Great Britain, the British Parliament was advised to disarm the people, that it was the best and most effectual way to enslave them, but that they should not do it openly, but weaken them and let them sink gradually by totally disusing and neglecting the militia. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly the situation that evolved in this country. I consider I consider and fear the natural propensity of rulers to oppress the people. I wish only to re prevent them from doing evil. John, uh, James Monroe said, but it ought always to be held prominently in view that the safety of these states and of everything dear to a free people must depend in an eminent degree on the militia. He said that in his first inaugural address. James Madison, the head Federalist himself, the guy who was against having the militias of the several states. He said, 
it, it, when this conflict arose between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, he had to write papers called the Federalist Papers. I'm sure a lot of you read them in school or have heard about them at least. Did you ever read the Anti-Federalist Papers? Did any teacher ever bring them forward and say, hey, these are opinions of some of the other founding fathers? And this is why this great conflict that happened then exists now. The same fight that they were fighting then about a strong central authority, a government, a government where that grants rights, right, on one side, versus a, a government that is supposed to exist to protect our individual rights. And, it, and the power remains with the people. And they exert that power through the militias of the several states if the government infringes on their rights. James Madison said, beside the advantage of being armed, which the Americans possess over the people of almost every other nation, where the governments are afraid to trust the people with arms. He wrote that in Federalist Paper 46, and he was using that to justify the reasons why the Constitution should be adopted. He was, he was saying, well, the Americans possess the ability, of, of the advantage of being armed, and nobody else has that. So we already had a revolution. You guys could just do it again. If it doesn't work out, just do it again. You're keeping your arms. We're allowing you to keep your arms. Feel good about that. Uh, and, and that was his argument. Uh, they proposed Bill of Rights relate to first, relate first to private rights. The great object in view is to limit and qualify the powers of government. So he was making the argument to the anti-federalists, well, government should be limited. To these federal troops attempting to impose tyranny uh, would stand opposed a militia amounting to nearly half a million citizens with arms in their hands. So he was saying, well, if the federal government raised a standing army, the militias of the several states would have a larger army and they would be better equipped and better armed. So even the Federalists understood that the intent of the Second Amendment was for the people to maintain ownership of arms suitable for military militia service. Not, well, you can have a revolver, you can have a bolt-action rifle because that's for your personal defense. The argument that took place between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists revolved around this issue of the militia and the ultimate right of the people to throw off that yoke of tyranny. <clears throat> the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. A well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people and trained to arms is the best and most natural defense of a free country. James Madison wrote that. Richard Henry Lee said, a militia when properly formed are in fact the people themselves and include all men capable of bearing arms. To preserve liberty, it is essential that the whole body of the people always possess arms and be taught alike, especially when young, how to use them. Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, another anti-federalist. What, sir, is the use of the militia? Is it to prevent the establishment of a standing army, the bane of liberty? Whenever governments mean to invade the rights and liberties of the people, they always attempt to destroy the militia in order to raise an army upon their ruins. <clears throat> Joseph Story, who's that Supreme Court Justice, uh, the militia is the natural defense of a free country against sudden foreign invasions, domestic insurrections, and domestic usurpation of power by rulers. 
The right of the citizen to keep and bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of the republic, since it offers a strong moral check against the usurpation and arbitrary power of rulers, and will generally enable the people to resist and triumph over them. I'm going to go on. So this argument of, well, there's no text, history, or tradition. You don't have a right to militia service. All of these quotes clearly indicate the founders understood. Militia service was an unalienable right. It was granted to us, we the people, by the Creator. James Byrd wrote, The possession of arms is the ultimate means by which freedom was to be preserved. Patrick Henry, in his Liberty or Death speech, wrote, The great object is that every man be armed. Everyone who is able may have a gun. Guard with jealous attention the public liberty. Suspect everyone who approaches that jewel. Unfortunately, nothing will preserve it but downright force. Whenever you give up that force, you are invariably ruined. My great objection to this government is that it does not leave us with a means of defending our rights or of waging wars against tyrants. Oh, sir, we should have fine times indeed if to punish tyrants it were only sufficient to assemble the people. Your arms, wherewith you could defend yourselves, are gone. That's what he was writing about the proposed Constitution. So because of all these words and because of all these demands by the anti-federalists, Something called the Massachusetts Compromise was initiated. And, and then what that did was at the Compromise they said, well, at the very first Congress, we're going to propose a Bill of Rights, and we're going to list all of these enumerated rights that individuals have that the government should not infringe. And uh, Patrick Henry went on to say, are we at last brought to such humili humiliating and debasing de degradation? that we cannot be trusted with arms for our defense. Where is the difference between having our arms in possession and under our direction and having them under the management of Congress in our defense, if our defense be the real object of them under the management of Congress, if our defense be the real object of having those arms, in whose hands can they be trusted with more proprietary, propriety or equal safety to us as in our own hands? He was arguing our right exists. We should be the ones who maintain arms suitable for service in the militia. Noah Webster wrote, before a standing army can rule, the people must be disarmed, and they are in almost every kingdom in Europe. The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword because the whole body of the people are armed. He also wrote, a people can never be deprived of their liberties while they retain in their own hands a power, a power sufficient to any other power in the state. That's pretty clear. Arms suitable for service in the militia. Alexander Hamilton, the compatriot of James Madison, the other hero of federalism, he wrote, in an admission in Federalist Papers 29, little more can reasonably aimed with, be aimed at with respect to the people at large than to have them properly armed and equipped. It was an admission that yes, uh, the individual rights and liberties need to be recognized. The people need to maintain ownership of those arms. 
if the representatives, he went on to say, if the representatives of the people betray their constituents, then there is no recourse left but in the exertion of that original right of self-defense, which is paramount to all positive forms of government, and which against the usurpations of the national rulers may be exerted with infinitely better prospect of success than against those of the rulers of the individual state. Pinch Cox wrote, who, well, he said in his speech, who are the militia? Are they not ourselves? Congress has no power to disarm the militia. Their swords and every other terrible implement of the soldier are the birthright of an American. The unlimited power of the sword is not in the hands of either the federal or the state governments, but where I trust in God, it will ever remain in the hands of the people. As civil rulers not having their duty to the people duly before them may attempt to tyrannize, and as the military forces which must occasionally raise to defend our country might pervert their power to the injury of fellow citizens, the people are confirmed by the next article in their right to keep and bear arms. The militia, who are in fact the effective part of the people at large, will form a powerful check upon the regular troops. Representative Williamson, the burden of the militia duty lies equally on everybody, on all persons. Fisher Ames, the rights of conscience, of bearing arms, of changing the government are declared to be inherent in the people. Thomas Jefferson, for a people who are free and who mean to remain so, a well-organized and armed militia is their best security. And finally, Thomas Jefferson wrote, I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. And what, what does that mean? That means he understood that by the possession of arms, it potentially creates situations where we don't have safe zones, where we may be imperiled by evil, by the ill deeds of others. But God gave us the power, the right to defend ourselves. And by exercising that right, we can protect ourselves and our community, our families, from that evil. Some argue that since militias are owned or under the command of the states, that the states are free to disarm the militia if they so choose. I think, based on all the quotes from the founders, you understand that to be incorrect. Therefore, of course, no individual has a right to keep and bear arms. The militia is not owned, rather it is controlled, organized, etc. by the governments. The federal government, as well as the states, have no legitimate power to disarm the people from which militias are organized. The Random House Dictionary from, uh, gives four definitions for the word regulate, which were all in use during the colonial period. And one more definition dating from 1690, which would have been applicable during the drafting of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. The definitions are well-regulated, to control or direct by a rule, principle, or method. That's the modern definition. To adjust to some standard or requirement as for amount or degree. To adjust so as to ensure accuracy of operation. To put in good order. And finally, of troops properly disciplined. That was the definition that the founders were aware of. 
we can be begin to deduce that well-regulated mint for Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Paper uh, number 29. The prospect of disciplining all militia of the United States is as futile as it would be in injurious if it were capable of being carried into execution. A tolerable expertness in military movements is a business that requires time and practice. It is not a day, nor a week, nor a month that will suffice for the attainment of it. To oblige the great body of yeomanry and other classes of the citizens to be under arms for the purpose of going through military exercises and evolutions as often as might be necessary to acquire the degree of perfection which would entitle them to the character of a well-regulated militia would be a real grievance to the people and a serious public inconvenience and loss. Hamilton indicates a well-regulated militia is a state of preparedness obtained after rigorous and persistent training. But he also hinted at a greater plan, something that the Federalists had up their sleeve, a trick. And that trick resulted in this conflict that we're still fighting to this day. Yale law professor Akhil Amar claims some individual rights were protected for collective purposes, the Second Amendment being one of them. However, this doesn't transform the individual right into a collective right belonging to the states or the militia. Keeping arms was a right that could be exercised individually or collectively. Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe wrote, the Second Amendment's central purpose is to arm we the people so that ordinary citizens participate in the collective defense of their community and their state. But it does so not through directly protecting a right on the part of the states or other collectives assertable by them against the federal government to arm the populace as they see fit. Rather, the amendment achieves its central purpose, central purpose by assuring that the federal government may not arm individual citizens without some, may not disarm individual citizens without some unusually strong justification consistent with the authority of the states to organize their own militia. Samuel Mitchell served in the New York State Assembly, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Uh, he stated this, the establishment of a militia in which the most able-bodied and middle-aged men are enrolled and furnished with arms proceeds upon the principle that they, who are able to govern, are also capable of defending themselves. The keeping of arms is therefore not only not prohibitive, prohibited, but is positively provided by law, and these, when procured, shall not rust for want of employ, but shall be brought into use for, from time to time, that the owner may grow expert in handling them. The meeting together of the youth now, and then to exercise them in arms, and to discipline themselves for reviews at regimental and brigade parades, is intended to infuse a martial spirit and qualify them for defensive operations. Americans of the revolutionary generation distinguish between the individual right to keep and bear arms and the need for a militia, which is to bear them. Yet it is equally clear that more often than not, they consider these rights inseparable. Shalope then refers to James Madison's Federalist 46, 
where Madison drew the usual contrast between the American states where citizens were armed and European nations where governments feared to trust their citizens. Then he observed that it is not certain that with this aid alone, the possession of arms, they would be able to shake off their yokes. But were the people to possess the additional advantage of local governments chosen by themselves, who could collect the national will and direct the national force, and of officers appointed out of the militia by these governments, and attached both to them and to the militia, it may be affirmed with the greatest assurance that the throne of every tyranny in Europe would be speedily overturned in spite of the legions which surround them. Is there any doubt that the founders understood the precise meaning of the Second Amendment? Is there any doubt that the Second Amendment includes the right of voluntary service in constitutional militia? During the debates of the ratifying convention in Virginia over Article 1, Section 8, George Mason wrote this, uh, no man has a greater regard for the military gentlemen than I have. I admire their intrepidity, perseverance, and valor. But when once a standing army is established in any country, the people lose their liberty. When against a regular disciplined army, yeomanry are the only defense, yeomanry, unskilled and unarmed, what chance is there for preserving freedom? Give me leave to recur to the page of history to warn you of the present danger. Recollect the history of most nations of the world. What havoc, desolation, and destruction have been perpetuated by standing armies? An instance within the memory of some of this house will show us how our militia may be destroyed. Forty years ago, when the resolution of enslaving America was formed in Great Britain, the British Parliament was advised by an artful man who was governor of Pennsylvania to disarm the people that it was the best and most effectual way to enslave them, but that they should do it not openly, but to weaken them and let them sink gradually by totally disusing and neglecting the militia. Why should we not provide against the danger of having our militia, our real and natural strength, destroyed? The general government ought at the same time to have some such power, but we need not give them the power to abolish our militia. If they neglect to arm them and prescribe proper discipline, they will be of no use. I am not acquainted with the military profession. I beg to be excused of any errors I may commit with respect to it, but I stand on the general principles of freedom whereupon I dare to meet anyone. I wish that in the case of general government should neglect to arm and discipline the militia, there should be an express declaration that the state governments might arm and discipline them. They may affect the destruction of the militia by rendering service odious to the people themselves, by harassing them from one end of the continent to the other, and by keeping them under martial law. So what started to evolve was, an, is, was, an, was a view by the Federalists that, well, we're going to give in to the Anti-Federalists. We're going to cave to, to, to what they're asking. But what we're going to do is the citizenry is going to be lazy. And eventually they're going to stop training. They're going to stop practicing. And when that happens, the central government will have the ability to raise a select militia. And the select militia will answer directly to the federal government. 
it will be trained by the federal government. Its officer cadre will be selected by the federal government. Uh, it will follow government regulations. And in doing so, we will strip the states of their rights. And, and that was what Alexander Hamilton believed. Uh, and, and Joseph Story, Justice Story in the mid 1800s, warned us that he was observing that it was happening. Along came the Civil War. More Americans died in that conflict than all of the conflicts combined. And at the conclusion of the war, the people were tired. They didn't want to take up arms anymore. They were tired. And, and so it was a good opportunity for these encroachments of federalism to begin to erode the right of militia service. And by 1903, something called the Dick Act was passed. And that federalized the National Guard. It created a standard where prior to the Dick Act, all of us were a part of the militia. And after the Dick Act, the militia was divided into categories. One of those categories is the National Guard. That's the select militia. And the other category is the unorganized militia. And even though the government knows that it's responsible, it has a duty to regulate all of the militia, it chose instead to let the, un uh, the unorganized militia languish without regulation. They assigned responsibilities to, of regulation through Congress, through the Dick Act, through the 1916 National Defense Act, and to the subsequent 1933 National Defense Act. They gave that authority to states, and they said to the states, hey, you regulate your militia, your unorganized militia. And the state legislature gave that authority to the governor, and the governor gave that authority to the adjutant general. And you know exactly how many regulations, what our training standards are, what has been written, what has been released for us in order for us to practice that right? Nothing. Nothing. Yet we have a right, and indeed a duty, to be well regulated so that we may keep and bear arms because it is necessary to the security of a free state. And the founders understood why. It's without question. I could keep going with quotes from the founders. They understood why. Why does the government today not understand that? Because it is a government that seeks to expand the powers of federalism to deny republicanism, to deny the rights of citizens guaranteed under the Constitution of a, uh, in a constitutional republic. Maybe take a little break. Maybe drink of water, <laughs> excuse me. While in the Federalist 46, Madison argued that a standing army of 25 to 30,000 men would be offset by a militia amounting to nearly half a million citizens with arms in their hands, officered by men chosen from amongst themselves, the anti-Federalists were not persuaded by these arguments, in part because of the degree of control over the militia given to the national government by the proposed Constitution. The fears of the more conservative opponents centered upon the possible phasing out of the general militia in favor of a smaller, more readily corrupted, select militia. 
proposals for such a select militia had already been advanced by individuals such as Baron von Steuben, Washington's Inspector General, who proposed supplementing the general militia with a force of 21,000 men given government-issued arms and special training. An article in the Connecticut Journal expressed the fear that the proposed Constitution might allow Congress to create such militias. This looks too much like Baron Steuben's militia, by which his standing army was meant and intended. In Pennsylvania, John Smiley told the ratifying convention that Congress may give us a select militia, which will in fact be a standing army, and worried that with this force in hand, the people in general may be disarmed. Similar concerns were raised by Richard Henry Lee in Virginia in his widely read pamphlet, Letters from the Federal Farmer to the Republican. Lee warned that liberties might be undermined by the creation of a select militia that would answer to all the purposes of an army and concluded that the Constitution ought to secure a genuine and guard against a select militia by providing that the militia shall always be kept well organized, armed and disciplined and include according to the past and general usage of the states all men capable of bearing arms. In Federalist Paper 29, Hamilton argued the inability to train the whole militia made select corps and a select militia inevitable. And, like Madison, shrugged it off and said, it's just a matter of time before it happens. And that's exactly what has happened to our right of militia service in this country. People say, well, the Anti-Federalists, it was just a small bunch of kooks. It wasn't really a big movement. It wasn't a lot of people. The Federalists, people really supported Federalism. And the Anti-Federalists, well, they're against the Constitution. They weren't against the Constitution. They were pro-individual rights. They wanted to preserve the individual rights and the individual liberties granted to them by the Creator. And they wanted assurances in that Constitution that guaranteed those rights, that guaranteed that the federal government would not infringe on those rights. Some of the anti-federalists, Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, Miss Mercy Otis Warren of Massachusetts, George Clinton of New York, he became the fourth vice president, Patrick Henry of Virginia, the first governor of Virginia, Sam Adams. Joshua Atherton, George Mason, Richard Henry Lee, Robert Yates, James Monroe became the fifth president, Amos Singletary, Samuel Bryan, Malacton Smith, James Winthrop, Luther Martin. They feared a strong central federal government would eventually repress individual liberties and natural rights in order to coalesce and usurp powers not granted it under the proposed constitution and diminish the authority of the several states. More of them were from rural areas of the colonies. More of them were from the western side of the colonies. More were from larger states rather than small states. They insisted upon a Bill of Rights, and they forced the Massachusetts Compromise. <clears throat> In the case Miller, the Supreme Court case directly addressing the Second Amendment, the government made two arguments for the National Firearm Act's constitutionality under the Second Amendment. First, it argued that the amendment gave sanction only to the arming of the people as a body to defend their rights against tyrannical and unprincipled rulers, and did not permit the keeping of arms for the purpose of private defense. 
Thus the right was only one which exists where the arms are born in the militia or some other military organization provided for by law and intended for the protection of the state. Isn't that interesting? Their argument was arms are for the militia when they were arguing in support of the NFA. Second Amendment, uh, second, the government argued that the term arms refers only to those weapons which are ordinarily used for military or public defense purposes. Isn't that interesting? Because in the Seventh Circuit Court, a couple of weeks ago, Judge Wood made a determination that was completely opposite. The court, citing rat ratification debates, legislative history, and approved commentators, defined the term militia as civilians primarily and soldiers on the occasion. The militia compromised all males physically capable of acting in concert for the common defense, and further that ordinarily, when called for service, these men were expected to appear, they were expected to appear, bearing arms suitable for service in the militia, supplied by themselves and of the kind in common use at the time. So here's, here's our laws in the Code of Virginia. I'm, I'm getting down in the stack. I'm getting there. The militia of the Commonwealth of Virginia shall consist of all able-bodied residents of the Commonwealth who are citizens of the United States and all other able-bodied persons resident in the Commonwealth who have declared their intention to become citizens of the United States for at least 16 years of age, except as herein provided, not more than 55 years of age. The militia shall be divided into three classes, the National Guard, which includes the Army National Guard, the Air National Guard, the Defense Force, and the unorganized militia. Subject to the direction and orders of the governor, the adjutant general shall provide for the training and administration of the National Guard and the Virginia Defense Force, and shall require the members of the National Guard and the Virginia Defense Force to attend such training when scheduled. No statute that requires them to provide our well-regulating regulations. How are we to be well-regulated when the government has a responsibility, a duty to tell us that? It's in the Constitution. It's, it, we have a duty under the Second Amendment, and yet there's no statute that says there, that, that they shall do it. The National Guard, the Virginia Defense Force, and the unorganized militia, or any part thereof, may be ordered into service by the governor in any order he determines. The National Guard, the Virginia Defense Force, or the unorganized militia, when called into service by the governor, shall serve for such time as the governor's judgment may be necessary. Whenever any part of the unorganized militia is ordered out, it shall not be governed by the same rules as, and regulations and be subject it shall be governed by the same rules and regulations and be subject to the same penalties as the National Guard. And he may likewise order out such a part of the unorganized militia as he may deem necessary. The governor shall, when ordering out the unorganized militia, designate the number to be called. He may order them out by calling for volunteers or by draft. And the unorganized militia shall be incorporated into the Virginia Defense Force if it's activated. Whenever the governor orders out the unorganized militia or any part thereof, it shall be incorporated into the Virginia Defense Force until relieved from service. 
punishment for failure to appear. Every member of the militia ordered out for duty who shall volunteer or be drafted, who does not appear at the time and place ordered, shall be liable to a punishment as a court-martial may direct. So the government has the authority to order you to report for militia service. But they have not directed you, they have not given you the regulations that are supposed to keep you well-trained, well-disciplined, and prepared for that service. What about your right of self-defense? Every member of the militia ordered out for duty, or who shall volunteer to be drafted, who does not appear at the time and place ordered, shall be liable to punishment such as a court-martial. Here's some other statutes that the opponents of what we're doing never talk about, and they're important. When any number of persons, whether armed or not, are unlawfully or riotously assembled, the sheriff of the county and his deputies, the police officials of the county, city, or town, and any assigned militia, or any of them, shall go among the persons assembled, or as near to them as safety will permit, and command them in the name of the commonwealth immediately to disperse. If upon such command the persons unlawfully assembled do not disperse immediately, such sheriff, officer, or militia may use such force as is reasonably necessary to disperse them and to arrest those who fail to do or refuse to disperse. To accomplish this end, the sheriff or other law enforcement officer may request and use the assistance and services of private citizens. Every endeavor shall be used both by the sheriff or other officers and by the officer commanding any other force which can be made consistently with the preservation of life to induce or force those unlawfully assembled to disperse before an attack is made upon those unlawfully assembled by which their lives may be endangered. That's State Statute 18.2-411. So the sheriff of a county has the authority to call upon private citizens or any portion of the unorganized militia in order to quell riotously, unlawfully or riotously assembled persons. So when people say only the governor can call out the militia, that's incorrect. There is a state statute that gives that authority to a county sheriff. If you refuse when the county sheriff calls upon you, state statute 18.2-463, if any person on being required by any sheriff or other officer refuses or neglects to assist him in the execution of his office in a criminal case or the preservation of peace, the apprehending or securing of any person for breach of the peace, in any case of escape or rescue, he shall be guilty of a class two misdemeanor. So again, we have a responsibility to respond to the hue and cry, to the call, of a constitutional officer, county sheriff. We should have regulations. We should be prepared, well-disciplined, but we're not. We've been neglected. Our right has been abandoned. And because of it, how can we exercise these demands of us? The governor or his designee may call forth the militia or any part thereof or state active duty for service in any of the following circumstances. I'm gonna skip ahead. 
in the event of flood, hurricane, fire, or other forms of natural or man-made disaster, wherein human life, public property, or the environment is in peril. In emergencies of lesser magnitude than those described in the pre preceding paragraph, including but not limited to the disruption of vital public services, wherein the use of militia personnel or equipment would be of assistance to one or more departments, agencies, institutions, or political subdivisions of the Commonwealth. When the governor or his designee, in consultation with the adjutant general, determines that the militia or any part thereof is in need of specific training to be prepared for being called forth for any of the circumstances expressed in subdivisions one through six, I didn't read all of them, I just read a couple of them, such training may be conducted with a state or federal agencies or agencies having the capability or responding to coordinating or assist with any of the circumstances set forth in subdivisions one through six above. Where are our regulations? Where is our training? How can we exercise our Second Amendment rights completely? State Statute 44-78.1, in the event of the circumstances described in Subdivision A245 of State Statute 44-75.1, arise within a county, city, or town in the Commonwealth, either the governing body or the chief law enforcement officer of the county, city, or town, may call upon the governor for assistance from the militia. The governor may call forth the militia or any part thereof. He can do so by asking for volunteers. Finally, there's an argument about paramilitary activity. Well, you guys are paramilitary. No, we are clearly constitutionally defined, statutorily defined members of the unorganized militia. A person is guilty of unlawful paramilitary activity, punishable by a class five felony, if he teaches or demonstrates to any other person the use, application, or making of any firearm, explosive, or incendiary device, or technique capable of causing injury or death to persons knowing, having reason to know, or intending that such training will be employed for use or in furtherance of a civil disorder. Assembles with one or more persons for the purpose of training with, practicing with, or being instructed in the use of firearms, explosive, or incendiary device, or technique capable of causing injury or death to persons intending to employ such training for use in or in furtherance of a civil disorder. Violate subsection A of 18.2-282 while assembled with one or more persons for the purpose of and with the intent to intimidate any person or group of persons while brandishing arms. So earlier I read to you our Articles of Incorporation, our mission statement, our, our objectives, and um, I clearly stated that under these circumstances, we are absolutely not training to intend in furtherance of a civil disorder. That is not the intent or purpose of our organization. We're simply exercising, we're merely exercising our constitutional right to volunteer, to be well-regulated, so that we may exercise the entirety of our Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms suitable for service in the militia. Lastly, last piece of paper. Uh, the sheriff has something called the pow power of the posse comitatus, the dual nature of the right and duty to keep and bear arms. The Constitution also gave the new federal government posse comitatus power. Historically, the posse comitatus is broader than the militia in membership. 
When the state carries out its duties of training for the militia, the militia is an organized body. The posse comitatus, however, is often ad hoc. The sheriff or other proper official can call out the posse when needed and compel service of the posse, but there is no legal theory or historical practice for a government official to require unwilling persons to undergo posse training like there is for militia service. A common phrase in early state constitutions was that people had the right to arms for the defense of themselves and the state. For example, in Missouri and Colorado, to keep and bear arms in defense of his home, person, and property, or in aid of the civil power, and thereto legally summoned. Creating the conditions for a well-regulated functional militia also has the obvious and escapable benefit of ensuring a strong and vigorous posse comitatus. The U.S. Constitution follows the model set down by Alfred the Great. The security of a free state requires that the entire people be armed so that they may defend themselves in the state, in the militia, in the posse comitatus, and in whatever other capacity. The government needs to be, needs the aid of the armed people. The power to employ the posse comitatus was originally a power that belonged only to sheriffs. Today, they remain the most frequent users of that power. Accordingly, sheriffs should be recognized as having standing under the Second Amendment and its state analogs to challenge laws or practices that interfere with citizen service in the posse comitatus. What does that mean? When and if the state legislature decides they want to employ a firearms ban on an entire category of weapons, the sheriff has standing to make the argument that that can't be done. So it's another avenue to fight against this unwarranted uh, destruction of our natural rights. The people, at the end of the day, we have to be reminded, the people and not the government possess the sovereignty. And so that's the argument in its entirety presenting the text, history, and tradition surrounding lawful constitutional militia service. As you can see, there is an abundance of evidence which clearly proves that not only is it a right of all citizens, but that it is a right that should be currently in practice. And that any organization or any body of people that tells you you do not have that right or that it has made, it's been made unlawful is lying to you. They are not telling you the entire truth. They are selecting sections of state statutes and regurgitating those sections to you. But in the entirety of the law, we clearly maintain the right of service in the volunteer constitutional militia. Now, why do they do that? Why are they saying these things? Because they want to disarm us. Why would they want to disarm us? They claim it's for the safety and security of other citizens. Well, the founders gave us a way to de de defend the safety and security of individuals and of the state. And that is through the use of the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Thank you very much. I appreciate your attention. I know it ran long. Uh, thank you.
I wanted to say thank you to all the members, volunteers who have, who have sacrificed their time, energy, and resources to make sure that this is a right that is still in practice, that it is no longer an abandoned right. And in doing so, you are offering evidence that the militia of the people still exists, and that will give us standing in any future litigation when the state legislature or the federal legislature determines that an entire category of firearms is going to be banned. It gives us standing. It allows us to take an argument to the Supreme Court and say, because it is necessary to the security of a free state, we are well regulated and we should have access to keeping and bearing arms suitable for service in the militia. Thank you.